Um, all right, so I get to do the introductions. Hello, my name is Nicole. I'm a sugar addict bulimic. I was uh, blessed with um, the invitation to be a speaker at this meeting uh, for uh, steps one, two, and three um, as a way to kick off the holiday season before we get into you know, the triangle. Well, we already had one part of the triangle, the Bermuda Triangle, the Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas. And uh, I love to coerce my sponsees into helping me. So I am actually going to have two of them. First of them is Megan F. Megan is my sponsee from San Francisco. She will be talking on step one. We would like to leave time at the end of each step for Q&A or um, questions, or I mean, or pitches or sharing. So Megan, how would you like your time? Let's say you'll talk for 40 minutes. That's a good, um, like every 15 minutes. I'm going to try to pay attention on my end as well. Does okay. Yeah. I'll just kind of wave so it's not too distracting. Okay. So awesome. without further ado, Megan F. from San Francisco. Yay. Hi, everyone. I'm Megan. I'm a compulsive overeater. Um, and I actually live in Portland now, but I, I'm from the Bay Area. I think there's a lot of California people on the, on the line, which is good. Um, so first, I just want to say thank you, Nicole, for this opportunity to do, to do service. And I was sitting here and praying to my higher power to have this service serve my own recovery, because that's the only thing I can really control. And I hope that, you know, you guys get something out of it as well. Um, but I can't, I'm trying not to look at the number of people ticking up on the meeting, because otherwise I'll just get get nervous about it. Um, but I, I appreciate um, this service. So I'm just gonna, gonna read the step to remind us. We're talking about step one today. One, step one, we admitted that we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. And as I was looking at this step, I actually realized that it was a bit of a two-parter, right? There's part A, we admitted we were powerless over food, Part B is that our lives had become unmanageable and the principle for this step is honesty. Um, so just to qualify a little bit, I came into um, OA in January of 2013 and I got absent in July of 2013. And I have not had a whole ton of physical weight loss. I tend to sort of ping between the same 15 pounds. And I have to remind myself that you know, I was compulsively overeating every single day of my life before I came in. And if I wasn't in recovery, I would sure as heck be a lot heavier um, than where I am now. Uh, and my abstinence is no binging, no starving, no exercise bulimia. And there are certain foods um, on my red light food list, especially at sort of the intersection of sugar and flour. Um, that I have not eaten in about eight years. And, um, you know, I have a lot of sanity and relief um, around those foods. And so also part of my abstinence is I go to two to four meetings a week, I sponsor, I'm in a long lineage of, um, of sponsors, I'm very lucky here in Portland that I get to be in the same rooms as my, let's see, my great, great sponsor is in the rooms with me here. And it's just, it's wonderful to be, um, in such a line of amazing women. Um, and I, I work the steps. 
And um, so I'll talk a lot, I think, today about what it was like and do some do some reading. And um, this was a really good exercise for me to sort of think about my understanding of step one. Um, because when I came in, I was pretty sure I understood the first part of that step. step. We admitted we were powerless over, over food. I was so beaten down by the food when I came in. I, I really did get my powerlessness, but um, the part about my life being unmanageable, I don't think I really understood until about a year ago. It took me longer to get that part of it. Um, and so I'll talk a little bit about that as well. So um, what it was like, uh, I grew up in a pretty shame-based dysfunctional home and the sort of culture of my family was very DIY. Um, you didn't talk about real things, you didn't ask for help. And my family's tools for shame were grandiosity, denial, control, and perfectionism. Um, and which, you know, are all well and good. I can still get grandiose, right? Uh, and it all works until it doesn't. They're great tools until you come up against something like the food where you have no control and feel a tremendous amount of shame. Um, and so the culture of my family was very much like, if you make a mistake, it's your fault. If you have a need, no one is gonna help you. And so today, still my first reaction to making mistakes is to cover them up or when I'm having needs is to pretend like they're not happening. And thankfully I have enough recovery now that I can like sort of course correct that. Um, and so I have a deep seated program programming to pretend that everything is okay on the outside and to figure it out myself. But I also get to see in my family, um, just in my, my immediate family, I get to see attempts at con controlling the consequences of the disease or the disease itself. So in my immediate family, there is anorexia, type two diabetes. Uh, I have a sibling who had cosmetic surgery by the age of 25, another sibling who had gastric bypass, uh, alcoholism, obesity. So, you know, these are all different ways my family members are trying to, you know, control or not control the disease. And it is only by the grace of my higher power um, that I found this program. Um, and yeah, I'm just so grateful for that. So to talk a little bit about what it was like uh, and the level of powerlessness I had with the food, um, so I started compulsively overeating from a very young age. I, you know, hid food, I hoarded food. Um, and that was really a way that I, I sort of moderated my fear and anxiety um, with growing up in a very, you know, chaotic and sometimes abusive home. It was a great tool for me when I was younger. Um, and then as a teenager, I started to pull my parents' diet books off the shelves and, um, you know, I started trying to diet, whatever that looked like. And, you know, I might be able to diet for a couple of days or, you know, maybe even a week. Um, but I was never great at it. Um, and when I really thought about my powerlessness, I mean, I, I came in the program at 27. So I was not one of those people 
who had tried every diet on the block before I came in. And yet I still understood my powerlessness around food. And I was like, well, how did I, how did I know that? And I, so I have to, to sort of go back to a time in my life, um, which was my, my college years um, where I was really beaten down by this disease. And I actually, I'm grateful for that today. Um, so I came into college and I gained, you know, probably like the freshman 10, freshman 15, because when other students were, were hanging out with friends or dating, I was binging in my dorm room by myself. Um, so I gained some weight. And then my sophomore year, I, deci I decided that I was going to do something about it and, you know, be the person that I was, was meant to be. Um, and I found a diet book that was edited by some editors of a women's magazine and I started um, starving myself. And then that's also where I picked up my exercise bulimia um, where you know I would spend all day running around on the tracks to the point where I actually bruised all the bones in my feet and could hardly walk. Um, I also have a disability, so I walk a little bit differently. My gait is different. And I injured myself so much that I couldn't even walk. And that, you know, that's like the level of powerlessness I have over this disease. Um, and then I still like forced myself to swim. And, and it, you know, it was all very punitive and punishing and not fun or, you know, a source of self-care for me at all. Um, and then at the same time, I was still looking for loopholes in my sugar addiction, right? So I would try to, to consume the most sugar I could or fake sugar that I could for the least amount of calories. And I think that's, that's one of the big things that separates abstinence to me from a diet is you know, refraining from compulsive foods and compulsive food behaviors. It's like when I was dieting, I was still trying to get my fix whatever way I could, just with fewer consequences. Um, so I was still doing that. And I had in my head that I thought being thin would be would mean that I would be loved and safe. But really, it just disconnected me further from my my peers. I was so wrapped up in the narcissism of my disease at that time and so worried about like what other people thought about me and my body and should I show up at this party or should I not um, that I really had no awareness of how my actions were impacting other people and I've recently had to go and, and make kind of a major amends for that time in my life because I just I was so in in you know, the self-involvement of the disease that I just, I didn't know. I didn't know what I, you know, what I was doing. Um, and I would lie awake at night and cry because I knew that my willpower would not hold on much longer and that I was more obsessed while I was on this diet, you know, I was more obsessed with food and my body image than I had ever been at any other time in my life. Like it just made me insane. Um, and during that time, I, I like starved myself down by about 15 pounds, um, which is a lot, lot for me. I'm not, I'm not that tall. And, um, and then I went home on spring break and my willpower just snapped. And I continue, I proceeded 
to eat everything in the house and binge until I made myself sick and then binge and binge and binge every single day until I had gained back all of that weight and then some. Um, and looking at this diet now, I can see, you know, the, the book was written by editors at a women's magazine and I can see I was eating 1200 calories a day and it was probably, and, and then I was exercising like a maniac and it was probably a diet um, that was meant for someone who was, you know, two or three times as old as me uh, and that I was starving myself, right? Um, which is a form of torture. I was torturing myself. Um, and so I wanna read a passage from the big book that I, I really love um, that sort of illustrates powerlessness. Um, so this is uh, from chapter three, more about alcoholism, page 30. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people or presently may be has to be smashed. We alcoholics are men and women who have lost our ability to control our drinking. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. All of us felt at times that we were regaining control, but such, such intervals used usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. We are convinced to a man, to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grips of a progressive illness. Over a considerable, considerable period of time, we get worse, never better. Um, you know, and that was really my experience with the food and with um, this diet. Somehow at the age of 20, I started to realize that I was powerless over food and dieting. And I just didn't know the pathway to recovery yet. And this diet really had knocked me down to the ground to the point where I knew I actually didn't have another diet in me. I couldn't do it again. It just made me crazy. Um, and so that was, I think, you know, a good learning for me. Um, Megan, and, that's 15. Awesome. Thank and you so much. And then also, Megan, your microphone is, keeps picking up background. Some, it's like dangling or hitting something. So just okay. so you know. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I'll try to hold it. Um, so that's good timing. So throughout my 20s, I continued to binge and it was, you know, a very secret, shameful thing for me. And I would do the thing where I would go out to dinner with my friends and eat a normal meal. Um, and then I would go on the way home to, you know, the drugstore or the grocery store and pick up the second or third meal and binge at home alone. Um, and then I would binge on the way to work as I was driving to work. I would hide foods in my glove compartment of my, um, of my car and I would almost get in car accidents um, on the way. And I, you know, I would eat the foods while I was sitting at my desk of this job that I was eating my way through. Um, and then I would go out to the grocery store or to, you know, the drugstore again at lunch pick up more food and have that, you know, that fix for the rest of the day. And so that's kind of, you know, the level of binging that I was at, you know, by the time I 
crawled my way in the program, I was binging pretty much every single day. Um, and something happened for me that I, I consider, you know, a miracle of my higher power, which is I was in the middle of a binge and I put something in the microwave that I was going to binge on. And as I was pulling it out of the microwave, I burned my hand on it. And I had this moment of clarity that um, this disease is going to kill me and there's nothing I can do about it. This disease is going to kill me and there's nothing I can do about it. Um, and that, you know, is a incredible admission of powerlessness. I think in that moment, I understood like, yeah, I, I don't have a solution here. This is not up to me. And from there, um, I found a meeting. I found, I, you know, I found a meeting and I went to my first meeting. So what happened is for the first time in my life, I told the truth about what was really going on and I asked for help. Um, for the first time in my life, I admitted out loud that I was a compulsive over overeater and the grip on me began to loosen and I began to come out of, out of shame about it. Um, and I was so desperate when I came in, I was willing to do whatever anyone who had more recovery than me said. So, you know, I just went to a bunch of meetings. I got a sponsor right away. I started working the steps. I became a little bit of a cheerleader for program, um, much to the annoyance of my non-program friends. Um, and, you know, I got abstinent after a couple of, of months, but I did not relate to the part of the first step where it says, and my life has become unmanageable because I had this idea in my head that if I would just stop compulsively overeating and also manipulate a guy to fall in love with me, that my life would just be perfect, right? Um, and my family's tools of grandiosity, denial, control, and perfectionism, like I was still holding on to those white knuckling it. And at the time when I came in, I had just um, started a business. I think I was actually unemployed, but I had just started a business and I had no doubt in my mind that I would be successful at it. Um, my grandiosity has served me very well at work. You know, those tools have served me well in my life. Um, but I couldn't deny my powerlessness around food and then also relationships. Uh, and then I was also living in San Francisco and working in the tech industry. So it was very like the chaos of that life was very normal to me. It was normal to work, you know, 10 to 12 hour days and medicate with alcohol and date people who were not available um, for a relationship. And, you know, I, I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. And so was every single person that I knew, you know, it was just a very normal kind of kind of thing. I thought my life was perfectly manageable if I could just stop compulsively overeating. Um, so now I want to read from the, the OA 12 and 12, and I have the, the older um, version of it. And this is from, let's see, this is from step one, page five. Um, our lives became unmanageable when the car wouldn't start, the computer breakdown, broke down, or our checking account wouldn't balance. We suffered from other people's unmanageable lives or from our bad, bad luck. What alternative did we have? We ate to state our fears, our, anxiety, our anxieties, the angers, the disappointments. We ate to escape the pressure of our problems and the boredom of everyday life. 
We procrastinated, we hid, and we ate. Before we came to OA and began discussing our experience honestly with other compulsive overeaters, we didn't realize how much we had damaged ourselves and others by attempting to manage every detail of our lives. It was only when we began to recovery, recover that we saw our child, childish self-centeredness of our willful actions. By trying to control others through manipulation and direct force, we hurt the ones we, we hurt our loved ones. We tried to control ourselves and we wound up demoralized. Even when we succeeded, it wasn't enough to make us happy. We hid from our pain by, by eating, so we didn't learn from our mistakes and we never grew up. Um, I love this passage from step one. It's like the thing I probably relate to more than anything else in this book, actually, um, that it was only in recovery um, as I started to get recovery that I started to be able to see how unmanageable, unmanageable my life actually was um, and started to see how I was, you know, perpetuating chaos and dysfunction um, into other areas of my life. And so um, what happened for me, continuing to, to be in program and in 2016, I moved to Portland and I promptly hit an emotional bottom with a major depressive episode and a romantic relationship that didn't go the way that I, I wanted it to. Um, I remained abstinent, but I was again in a place of incomprehensible demoralization. And I became again, willing to do whatever anyone who had more recovery than me said. And from there, I found a new sponsor, Nicole S. And I started working on my codependency that led me to some other programs. Um, and I really like, I'm just, I hope I'm not taking from Nicole's share, but I really like Nicole's version um, of the first step. So I'm going to say that here. Her version of the first step is, I am powerless over food and my life is not what I thought it would be despite my best efforts. I am powerless over food and my life is not what I thought it would be despite my best efforts. So this, you know, was very true for me at year, let's call it year four or five of recovery that, you know, I was, I was abstinent. I, I was good at work. I was good at, at certain things in my life, but my life was still not what I wanted it to be. Um, and I couldn't control or manipulate my life into being what I wanted it to be. Um, so I relate to that a lot. Um, I started to work the steps with Nicole and I started to see how my family diseases of shame, abuse, alcoholism, and compulsive overeating um, contributed to the unmanageability in my life. And I started to see my part in unmanageable situations. And I can see now how, um, let's see, that I was unable to actually engage in any relationship, particularly romantic relationships, but really any relationship, even with friends, without engaging in one of my diseases. So that's either food, alcohol, or codependency. You know, like I just could not be that vulnerable with anyone without the, the shield of my addictions. Um, so I started to see that through working the steps. Um, and that I, you know, I too, 
was unavailable and emotionally immature, you know, as unavailable and emotionally immature as the people I was trying, trying to date. Um, so what it's like now, I continue to work my program and the steps. And one of the tools that I use the most and is most resonant for me around step one is um, sharing my food in specific with a fellow in this program. And what I know to be true is that if I am honest about my food, then I am in step one. I have taken step one. If I am unwilling to turn over my food, then there is a part of me that thinks that it's up to me and I got it and I don't need help. Right. Um, and so that, and, and to be honest, I'm not always willing to turn over my food, right? Sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. Right now I'm in a place where I am willing to turn over my food. Um, and my version of step two is I became willing to tell the truth and to ask for help. I became willing to tell the truth and ask for help. And that for me um, is revelatory coming from the family that I came from is to just tell the truth ask for help. And I don't have to know all of the answers all of the time. Um, and another thing that Nicole S says that I love is that step one is the only step we really have control over, right? The principle of honesty, we can only be honest about what we are putting in our mouths and how, you know, well we're working our program, we can only show up. Um, and so to talk a little bit about Thanksgiving, so last year at Thanksgiving, and this was pre-COVID times, um, we went over to some friends' houses and I, you know, I ate kind of a lot of food, but I was keeping, you know, keeping track of what I was eating and I wrote it all down and sent it to my food buddy. And it was like kind of a lot, um, but I didn't hide any of it on that day. I was a hundred percent. And there, you know, there's always this part of my brain that wants, wants my food, wants to lie about my food and wants to clean it up around the edges, or maybe not share this little part of it so that it looks more perfect or whatever. And it's really only when I get honest about it, um, ruthlessly honest about it, that then I'm free, right? Then I'm free of the obsession of body and mind and that I then can continue working the next step. So um, that the sharing of my food has been really, really important for me and really important for my abstinence. Um, and I was recently talking to a newcomer who said that she wanted the transformation of the steps but that she was not willing to turn over her food. She had fired her sponsor because her sponsor wanted her to turn over her food. And she said, well, I know I've been sometimes, but I think, you know, I don't need anyone telling me what to eat or I don't need to share my food. And I, and I just thought like, you know, for me, transformation is only a result of desperation. Like I have had no transformation in my life until I am willing to admit that I don't have all the answers and, and, you know, maybe to be teachable, right. That I don't have any, all the answers other people do. I'm willing to listen and I'm willing to do the work. And then that's when the transformation comes. Right. Um, it's not until I'm willing to, to let go of the control um, that things actually can begin to, 
to change. Um, so today I try to try to as much as I can one day at a time, just really have an understanding of my full extent of my powerlessness over food, over my other addictions and compulsions, over people, places, and things. And that's really when I can start to see my part and begin to begin to change. Like I think a lot of this most recent step work for me has has been um, seeing how powerless I was over the family disease of addiction um, and abuse and seeing like what was not my part helped me see what my part actually was. And then I didn't have to continue to perpetuate those things, you know, in my life going forward. Um, and I know today that when my food starts getting messy or my disease get, gets, gets up, the solution is not to control my food more. It's to lean into program and tell the truth and ask for help. And that I am not expected to know the answer. Right. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of outside issues and things going on in the world right now. And my disease can just, I call it the, the were as in the warrior. Like I, I can see the whir in my head where my brain just starts ticking and worrying about stuff that I just, is just so far out of my control. It's so far out of my control. And if I can, can meditate with that and sit with that, um, I can start to, to separate myself from the warrior and not be so caught up in it and realize like, you know what? this person or this situation has its own higher power. And it's really, really not up to me as like an individual person in <laughs> Portland, Oregon, who, you know, doesn't work in politics to figure that out. Um, and then what becomes clear, right, is just like the next right action, whatever the, the next right action is for me. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's going to a meeting. Sometimes it's just doing my doing work. Sometimes it's doing step work. Sometimes it's making a phone call. Um, and I'm oh, thank you. That's perfect. Um, oh yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So a lot of my my concept of a higher power is just not needing to have the answer, not needing to be in control. Um, I actually think that's all that I have and all that I want to say. I made it to time. I wasn't sure I could talk about step one for this long. Glad that I did. Uh, thanks, everyone. I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Megan. Now, um, thank you, everyone who's on the line. Trisha, can we open up the uh, or Trish, can we open up the chat? So at yes. this point, we'd really like to invite people if they have any questions for Megan or any feedback, or if they just want to take a minute to claim your seat and respond. We'd really like this to now be the fellowship time around step one. And then at two, we will start step two. So please okay, so, let us know. What we encourage you to do is raise your little blue hand. Okay, that. If you're new to Zoom, how you do that is you click on the participants button on the bottom of your screen. And at the very bottom, one of the options is raise your hand. And then a little blue hand comes up. If you can't figure that out, turn on your video and raise your little blue hand. On the phone, I believe it's star nine. If you've called in, you could do star nine to raise your little blue hand. 
and we'll call on people. It looks like Marlon's got his hand up. Right. All right, Marlon, go ahead. Yes, I, um, I wasn't clear what I heard about um, uh, sugar and uh, using sugar substitutes. Go ahead, Megan. Yeah, okay, sorry, there was a, a, a alert on my screen. Um, yeah, so for me and sugar, I mean, I drink a lot of Diet Coke still, still, I do that. I'm still a compulsive overeater. I'm not 100% um, abstinent from sugar. And, and the, the way that I have sugar substitutes is like foods that, you know, are maybe not a problem for me today. If they become a problem, then I have to start talking about them and consider like, maybe I don't want that to be in my, my diet anymore. And so actually I could tell us, I recently, I had a food where it was a yellow light food for me and it had some sugar and it was like a, a quote unquote health food, had some sugar in it. Um, and every, oh, I'd say six months or so, I, I just overate on this one food and I, you know, I wouldn't keep it in the house, but I would still every once every six months, I would have a slip on it and I would end up in a place of incomprehensible demoralization with this particular food. And finally, the pain of just having that food be on the table all the time and like, should I eat it? Should I not eat it? I don't know. And then having to be honest about the fact that I overate it. Um, was not worth it for me anymore. And it's, I think it's been maybe almost nine months now since I've had that food where I'm just willing for today to not, not eat that food, right? Um, and, and my food then, and my sugar intake or, you know, it, it's just so much cleaner. All of my food is cleaner when I'm not messing around with these like, you know, in the middle yellow light foods that might be okay sometimes, but aren't other times. So um, that's what I do. And it seems for me, like I will, I will get more clean about certain areas of my program. And then there's like another food will pop up and that's just kind of how it is, <laughs> is um, you know, once one gets clean, then there's some other area that pops up and then I have to look at that as well. Great. All right, Michelle, you have your hand up. Michelle, we can't hear you. I, uh, yeah, hi, sorry. <laughs> I was trying to unmute and mute. And anyway, um, thank you so much for your share, um, uh, Megan. And, um, you know, you, that statement that you said, um, we admit we're powerless over food and that um, this is what I heard you say and that our lives are not what we want them to be. And I totally, oh my gosh, I really relate to that because um, I've said it before. It's, you know, I would, this is where I, I really, my food took off was, you know, I was disappointed in myself in a career that didn't seem to work out. I really forced myself into it. And then, you know, I would go home and eat. Um, my father was dying and I just have a hard time. I was scared. I had a hard time feeling my feelings and I would go home and have a sugary substance. And it just seemed like 
I knew I was just, I mean, I know I had sugar problems since I was very young, but somehow it just really took off. And, um, I got up to 200 pounds. Um, and, um, I'm five, two, by the way. And it just was, I was powerless. I just, I couldn't believe it, you know? Um, and you know, there's a lot of, um, how do, how do I say that? A lot of denial that I still have. And that's why I kind of, I wanted to do this uh, one, two, and three workshop um, as far as that goes. Yeah. And so I was unhappy. And then I'd wake up the next day vowing I wouldn't do it again. And then, you know, I'd be sober for a week or whatever. So needless to say, I, I totally related to your share. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's honesty and having... Um, me being honest and letting other people see me because it was, I grew up in a kind of, well, surprise, a dysfunctional home. I'm going to wrap this up in a minute, less than a minute. And um, so it's just um, food was comfort. Food is a comfort. And I, but I don't want to be 200 pounds anymore. And I, you know what? I just had a coworker that died who were the same age. And it's like, are you going to start to live? You know, I, I'm asking that of myself. So um, we all have uncomfortable feelings we don't want to deal with. So I have to do, um, I don't have to do this program I don't want to do this program, but um, I, I need to do the program. So anyway, thanks. Awesome. Thanks, Michelle. So um, Nicole, our next one is Bonnie. And I wanted to ask if you would like us to have a timer, Megan and Nicole, and if you would like us to have a timer two or three minutes or no? No, we'll just, if, if we run out of time, you know, we run out of time. Okay, be so are, we, are we stopping step one then at two o'clock? Yeah, and then okay. I think Stacy's on the line. So go ahead, Bonnie. Yeah, I'm Bonnie Jean, compulsive overeater in San Diego. I really appreciated Hi. you saying that uh, my life, well, I, what I heard was my life is not what I imagined it would be and not needing to have all the answers. Uh, yeah, because right now, uh, it looks like I might be in another male-female relationship and it's scary as heck because I know what I've done in the past. And, you know, my, I did better with my second husband than my first husband. They both died. We didn't get divorced, but it's to me it's rather miraculous considering the weapons I had for a relationship versus tools. And I wanted to thank you for those two comments because what I've been reflecting is I'm still looking so much in the past that I'm not so much looking right here. What that means to me is like this week is would have been my 39th wedding anniversary and the fourth anniversary with my first husband about something. And it's like, okay, right. You're going to have anniversaries. Things are going to come up. You're going to go up and down. It's okay to go forward even with this other stuff. And it's scary because you know, when I open myself up to somebody, I'm opening myself to get hurt. And then I'm also uh, that I might make mistakes and hurt someone else. And I have to accept that that's just part of the package. You know, uh, I like what you said, because yeah, mistakes, mm -mm, that wasn't allowed in my, my childhood. It had to look right, not feel right. I mean, all of this stuff. So 
thank you for those two statements because I'm, I'm going to be writing on those because it's like, I don't have to have the, all the answers. And one of the things I heard in another program was the solution for today may not be the solution for the problem tomorrow. But I need to be just staying right here. And I think, as I said, those two comments right there is just, if I don't hear anything else today, I'm very glad I came. Thank you very much. Great, thank you. Joseph? Joseph? Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can, Joseph. Go ahead. Yeah, listen, um, I'm doing the best I can as far as food eating. I haven't been overeating. Uh, you know, I've been you know, I, I, I've been striving to eat healthy and, 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 and most of the time I cook at home, um, you, you know, meat and vegetable potato. Uh, I, I have fruit salad at home. I mean, sometimes I have, I have my snack. I, uh, you, you know, I will, I will have like four cookies. They're small. Uh, but other than that, I, I mean, like today I skipped a breakfast and lunch. I just wasn't hungry. I'm going to start to make my dinner soon. Um, you know, I, I, I was going to make like turkey meatballs, turkey stuff, peppers and tomato sauce, you know, for tonight. And that's basically how I eat. You know, I have a, a different meat each day. I have a vegetable. And so on. I, I, um, I'm, I'm also, you know, at the same time, I'm striving to get all, all over a difficult time because I just broke I broke up with a girlfriend almost like two months ago. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you, Joseph. Keep coming back. Yeah, which I'm doing. And um, now I understand with this meeting, you can ask questions or something or. Yes, feel free to ask a question to Megan. Well, Megan, I want to ask you something because you're a woman. Have you sure. ever gone through a relationship where it was difficult to get over it? Okay, Joseph, actually, that's not appropriate to this meeting. This meeting is for right. Overeaters Anonymous. And if you have a question about the program or any of the steps. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, as far as the steps, um, what steps can I relate to as far as um, uh, um, uh, the proper eating um, or... Uh, or, 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 or just like being happy, happy with myself. Uh, you know, because like I said, I'm, I'm going through a difficult time, but um, mainly the food, uh, you know, are there any steps additionally I have to take as far as uh, the eating of the food? Uh, Megan, let me, Joseph, I think it's important that you find a sponsor and attend a meeting. There's many meetings that will happen. I'm sorry, but the, the question is a little bit out of scope for this particular program. So I just, 
I just recommend that you keep attending meetings and find a sponsor. And there are, sponsor. Pamphlets, there are pamphlets Hello. about food plans. And Michelle, let me talk a minute. I have a sponsor. I talk to I talk to him every morning. Okay, and there are food plans that you can read, and there are steps in the literature that you can read. Uh, yes, I have the uh, book, the the twelve step program. Great. All right. What Thank you. Are, what questions are appropriate for this meeting? So, Joseph. Okay. This is Trish. I'm going to jump in and private chat with you and I'll try to see if I can't help answer your questions because we've got several other people who have their hands up. So we're just running short on time. I apologize, but I will, I'll reach out to you on the, on the chat. Do you know how to use the chat? Okay. While Trish is dealing with that, Jen, do you want to go ahead and share? Hi, am I unmuted now? Yeah. Okay. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Megan, for your uh, your share, your your service. Um, I um, I heard what you said about you know not willing to if you're not willing to turn your food over to your sponsor, then uh, you're not willing to be honest. And uh, did you say that that was that? Well, obviously that's uh, step one related. But uh, could you go over that again for me? Because I, I, I do have issues with turning over my food to my sponsor. And I'm in a, um, a, um, I'm in a, a weigh and pay program. And so, and so is my sponsor. So it's always been, oh, well, I, I stuck with my, you know, weigh and pay program. And she's like, okay. And so, but whenever I do turn over my food, uh, then it turns into something else where she starts picking on the foods that I'm eating. And then I'm not willing to do that. Mm. Yeah. Um, so thank you for that question, Jen. Um, what I do actually, so I used to send my food to my sponsor. And what I found when I was sending it to my sponsor was that there was a power differential in the relationship that caused me to not want to be honest about my food. And so the thing that works for me is actually sending my food to appear in the program where we share our food with each other. And it feels to me like a, an equal relationship where I have less of an inclination to try to clean my food up around the edges. Um, and we don't, I think, it, or, or this is just my opinion, but it's okay to ask for what you need. And if you don't want feedback on your food, I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing. The person that I spend, send my food to, we don't really comment on it. It's just, hey, thanks for sending it. Um, you know, I received that and that's it. Um, and I like that because as a compulsive overeater, I am very apt to go into shame very quickly um, about what I ate and that a way of sending it to appear is a way of keeping me honest and turning my food over to something other than myself, right? To a person that's not me. Oh, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. We have time for a short share because we're moving to two o'clock. So Nancy. My name is Nancy Beecham. I'm a compulsive overeater. I've been abstaining in Overeaters Anonymous 
for 44 years, maintaining 150-pound weight loss, and my sponsor was the founder of Overeaters Anonymous. And I read you from Roseanne's pamphlet that is very old and was written, and I don't know how this turned into a food workshop, but it did. Um, this was written, I think, in 1979, and then she revised it in 1988. And it says very plainly what she wrote in 1960 as she founded this program. Abstinence in food is to restore me to healthy eating, to sound behaviors, and to sound thinking. What I put in my mouth is to nurture my body, not to comfort or excite or to play with not to make me move forward or to go into the past, something to nurture me for that day. And so with that in mind, we need to go to a doctor or a nutritionist and discover a food plan that's appropriate for us and just do it. And the way that all of us did it back in the day was we got a food sponsor and we became accountable and we put it on paper and we got it rid of it. And we went on with what Overeaters Anonymous is about. And it's about principles and the steps. The short form of the, form of the first step is, I know it, is I can't handle it. So we put one hand in the newcomer and one hand in the old timer. We got a posse of friends and together we started to get well. And we got well by not having any answers, by not arguing and suffering and struggling to forgetting about all those problems we had with food because now our food has been taken care of. So now what we do is we listen to the people that went ahead and put down the pebbles and they laid a foundation and we step in that foundation and do what they did. And you know, 44 years later, this is about the steps getting us through the holiday. And my holidays, I feel safe and secure and serene with food neutrality. I know what I can eat. I know to bring my own car so I can escape if I have to. I know to bring an OA friend. This is about learning a lot of tricks. There's so much amazing things here, but my brain was wired wrong. So I have to empty out my head and let you people in these seats put new thoughts in. And they have to teach me that I'm wonderful and I'm strong and I'm, I can be healthy and I can be fine. The reason we don't want to eat is all those things like sweet and low and, and, and all the things that are bad for us is because they're rotting our bodies. And when you get my age, nearly 80, you're going to be very sick. You'll have cirrhosis and diabetes and you don't want to do that. You don't want to rot your teeth. And so the truth is we want to be healthy. We want to hold our head up and be examples because you guys are close with this. You get to spend the best years of your life as you age helping others right now from all over the world. Sure, we have troubles. That's why we're here, we're insane. So you get to learn here how to walk in a way. Make it, I'm doing my best. Um, so uh, Stacy is also a sponsee, uh, also Portland, Oregon, and is now gonna talk for 40 minutes, 35, 40 minutes on step two. And then we will again have time for questions or comments. Stacy, how do you want your time? Um, let's see, could you give me 15 minute increments and then let me know when I have like five minutes left? Sure. That'd be great. Thank you. 
Uh, hi, everybody. I'm Stacy, anorexic bulimic and a compulsive overeater um, from Portland, Oregon, as Nicole said. It's so great to see all these faces on here. Um, most people I don't know and seeing people from looks like all across the country, just seeing a few people who have their location listed. Um, yeah, I feel really grateful to be part of this. Um, I've been in program long enough to know that service is its own reward and I get as much out of this as hopefully my fellows uh, will when I'm doing service. Um, and for step two, just thinking about the nature of that step, um, I have to stop and just kind of connect with my higher power for a moment and ask to be a channel and um, ask that my higher power speak through me and say something that hopefully will be helpful to all of you and to my fellows. Um, and it may have already been said at the opening of this meeting, but my viewpoints and my experiences do not represent OA as a whole. This is my experience. This is how I have experienced my experiences of the disease, my experiences of recovery, um, my experience of the program. So um, again, I'm anorexic bulimic and a compulsive overeater. So I'll talk a little bit about how that's kind of like woven through this step in my story. Um, so one way I think about this step is I know like what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. Um, and there's kind of two major parts of this step came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. You know, the first part is, okay, well, what is a power that's greater than me, right? And I have to really stop and like do the work around exploring what that is. And this step, when I first came into, a, I came in actually a different program, my first 12 step program, um, not that long before OA, but a little while before. I mean, it's, it feels like a really big abstract step and it's really helped me to like really get concrete on some of my work and like my writing around like, okay, let's really dig into this. Um, so looking at like where I've come from, you know, what have been some powers greater than me? And so in my childhood, you know, it was a raging dad. It was um, my, we went to church for a while for a few years when I was a kid. I think it was mostly out of my parents' sense of duty uh, my mom was raised Presbyterian and that's what her family did. So there was part of it I remember enjoying as far as like being in the church choir and, you know, doing that. But a lot of it was like you get dressed up and you sit quietly in a pew for an hour um, and that's and you listen to someone talk, you know, um, you listen to a man at the front of the room, talk to everyone for an hour. And so the idea of that I inherited of God was, you know, the pretty much classic, like paternalistic, um, authoritative kind of punishing God where, yeah, there was messages about God being love, but it was also very much threaded through with like, you better not piss God off. Right. So like that was kind of my my inherited idea of like this sense of a higher power. Um, so a lot there was a lot of like shame and fear kind of threaded through that. And then as I got older um, and moved into adolescence, um, this was a shift for me and a shift for my family. Um, this is when the disease really started to emerge for me. And the first manifestation of the disease for me was anorexia. So the dysfunction in my family, um, my mom is anorexic. As I mentioned, my dad has some rage issues, like all of these different aspects of it. Um, that came out in me as like trying to get a sense of control, you know, really living in a way that felt out of control. I couldn't have identified it as, as that at the time, but anorexia was my way to try to feel in control of all these things that were like really terrifying um, in a way that I couldn't even describe. So at that point, you know, my higher power became control. Um, and this was all happening again, like without my awareness, but it's like, if I can just get control of things, if I can just like, eat as little as possible, 
if I can just do all of these exercises every day, no matter what, like I literally had checklists that I would check off like the exercises I would do, you know, I would have to like make things look a certain way every day. It was very rigid. Um, and at the same time, my family was also going through a shift where we had moved. And my, I remember my parents asking my sisters and I, so do you want to keep going to church? You know, and we're like 10, 11, 12. And of course we're like, uh, no. And so, you know, my family stopped going to church. And I think it's when that emerged, like my parents never were really connected to it anyway. You know, they didn't have like a, a deep, meaningful connection or a community um, in that sense. And so my family basically kind of I don't want to say flipped exactly because they were never like that devoted to the church, but definitely became um, critics of anyone who believed in God. Um, it sort of became almost like an unofficial sport in my family to like ridicule uh, people who believed in God, you know, um, people who like were weak enough to like need to believe in a God. You know, that was like a lot of the message that I got for years and that like to be intellectual, to be, um, you know, believer in science. It was very dichotomous. It's like, you're either, either a believer in God and you're an idiot and like, you don't actually believe in science or the other choice is like, you're intellectual, you know, you believe in science, you can like run on self-will. So like, these are kind of the two choices that I was presented with. And so, you know, I fell in line with that. Um, it felt like powerful to look at like, oh yeah, look at all of these people who have to rely on this God, you know, all of these Christians and whoever else, you know, people of faith were like, we're so much better. There was this like feeling of superiority that like, we didn't need God. Well, in my family, you know, what wasn't discussed was like, what was there in absence of that God? And as I've learned in program, like every human being has a deep need for spirituality, whatever that is, however you want to describe it. You know, for some people it's like fishing, going out and going fishing can be your spirituality. You know, for some people it's just being in some kind of community and connection, like spirituality can be pretty much, you know, whatever, however you define it. So for my family, it was just like, there was a hole, right? Well, there is no God, people who believe in God, are ridiculous and there was nothing to replace that. So that basically um, kind of over the years evolved into like my disease progressed. So as I moved through anorexia and then like the exercise bulimia and I attempted other forms of bulimia and then that um, evolved into compulsive overeating and binging. And then I found drugs and alcohol. And that was a huge relief because then I could have relief from just all of these perfectionist voices and just all the shame I had around the binge eating um, and the rest of my behavior around food. So it was like piling on layers of the disease um, and eventually got to a point. I have this clear memory of being 25, living in an apartment by myself. I was still like pretty deep in the disease at that point with all of those different aspects. And I remember sitting there and I talked to my best friend, not uh, that much before that, just about, I was really struggling. I've always been a, a seeker in that way of like, there's gotta be something bigger, but I just kept being told that like, well, there's not, or, you know, again, I didn't want to be seen as like this inferior person if I did need to believe in something bigger. And so I remember talking to her about that and she said, well, you know, energy is neither created nor is it destroyed. And that was, you know, she was kind of trying to give me some comfort about like what happens to us when we die. And just like, you know, these existential questions. And I remember just sitting there by myself after that conversation, just feeling like so hopeless, so, so devastated. Like there's nothing out there, you know, like really nihilistic. Like, what is the point of all this? You know, I'm in my disease. I'm trying to find solace in drinking and drugs and food and none of that's working. You know, it's still maybe giving me some temporary relief, but 
not in the way that it even used to, you know, um, all of that. So just really feeling a sense of despair um, about it. So fast forward to a few more years of that. And then thank God, the God I can believe in now, uh, found my way to recovery. And again, I started, so I started in AA, was in there for a few months and quickly knew that OA was also where I needed to be. Um, and so the first concept, and I really bristled at, you know, all the mentions of God that I heard in meetings, the big book I had a huge problem with. I have my first big book where I still have the notes I took the first time I read it, where I have all these like faces with like a wiggly mouth that are next to the word God of like, oh, they're really mentioning that word again. Or, you know, just like I, I would feel this like literal shudder when I read about God or people talked about God. I was this, I had a really difficult time with it. Like, this is what I'm going to have to do to stop drinking or to find, you know, become abstinent, find relief from all this behavior with food. And I at least could latch on to, I heard enough people talking about this, that you could make the group your higher power. And I was like, okay, I see all these other bodies here in the room with me in these meetings. I can believe in that. I can see all of you. I understand that collectively all of these people in this meeting have more power than me. That's where I'm starting. Like that works for me. So that's really been uh, part of my journey is like an evolving concept of a higher power, you know, and it's like the concept that I had then is not what I have now. And I'm sure it'll keep changing as I spend more years in recovery. Um, but it's, it's what worked at that time. It's like, okay, the group, you know, will be, will be my higher power, what this group, um, what they help me with and what the, you know, 12 steps are recommending I do. That's, that's a higher power. And that's all I have to start with, um, for right now. Um, so I had to really confront, you know, some of these deep, beliefs around God and higher power, you know, that I had again, this like, if you just work harder, you can do this on your own. Why would you need God? You know, really like getting into all that self-will kind of thing um, to, you know, doing working step one deeply enough to know that I truly was powerless and I could not do this alone. So being willing to look at, you know, what is a higher power for me? So then what happened as far as being in recovery, um, a lot of it was about, so once I started working the steps, and this has been happening in a reiterative way as I've continued working the steps more than once, is like consciously replacing these inherited forms of a higher power, right? A lot of them are toxic forms of a higher power, where even when I was consciously trying to think about, okay, what's the higher power that I need? I still would have this, you know, sort of subconscious feeling of like a punishing God. If I didn't like eat perfectly, right. And follow like my food plan. Once I started working a food plan in OA, you know, then, then God wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. Or, you know, it was a lot about me, like pleasing God. Like I had to earn my worth with God or my idea of a higher power. You know, I was trying to like, please this like abstract force out there. Um, so I had to really start examining all those things and challenging them and replacing them with something that worked for me. You know, that's what I was told. Like if your concept of God isn't working for you and you're struggling with staying sober or abstinent or sane, it's like, then you need to re-examine your concept of God and your higher power. Um, and I use the word God, by the way, just because it's a shorthand, it's, it's simple. And I know, again, it's a very fraught word and I still have some issues with it, but I say it just naturally now. I don't bristle at it anymore. It actually feels pretty peaceful to me, which is a big deal. Um, but I say that word just knowing like the word God doesn't work for everyone. Um, but I say like higher power or God, either one. Um, so a lot of this, as I've been working the program, as I've been working the 12 steps is like expanding my concept of just the divine, right? What we might call a divine power. 
Um, so this has been through like also like 12 step readings, outside readings, practicing prayer and meditation. Um, I remember being, it recommended to me that I start praying. I think I was on my ninth step by then, the first time I worked the ninth step. And I just, I was in a lot of struggle um, and people just said, just try praying. And I was like, I don't even know what that looks like. You know, again, I saw what it looked like for people in church to pray. I remember that as a kid. Um, but I just like, okay. So I just, you know, would get down on my knees and just start saying things that came to mind. And that's what worked at the time. Um, so of course that's evolved for me as well. What prayer and meditation looks like today. I'll talk a little bit more about that later as far as like what it is today. Um, just in conversation with other people, you know, talking to other, my fellows in program, like what does their concept of a higher power look like? And then experientially, and that's probably been one of the most powerful ones, um, you know, being in nature and like, I can sit there and I, I live in Oregon where we have huge tall trees and I can go out in the middle of the forest and just like look up at these trees, these Douglas firs. And I mean, they're gigantic trees. And when I leave Oregon and I've been somewhere else for a while and I come back and see our trees again, I'm like, oh yeah, our trees are like truly gigantic. And I can sit there and just like take in like the power of this nature that is awe-inspiring, you know, that I don't know what exactly it is or how it came to be, but it's bigger than me, you know? So like that sort of experience or going to the coast, we live a couple hours from the ocean. So like, you know, just sitting there and watching the ocean and knowing like, that's a power greater than me. So those experiences and then um, also, thank you. Um, also in program, I've had two kids. They are two and four now. And that experience, I'll tell you, has really made me explore the idea of a higher power. Uh, also, thanks to my sponsor, um, very much with the idea that like we are all born as particles of God. And in our hu human journey, we move away from that, at least especially I know for me and my experience in the disease, like definitely moving away from like our own divine that's in all of us and then find our way back to it. That's been my experience of recovery is finding my way back to that, to this divine power that's always been within me and always will be. But when I'm in my disease, I don't feel it and I forget it's there. So that process of recovery has been coming back around to it. So seeing that in my kids, you know, holding my newborns, looking at them, I could very much believe that they are a particle of God, right? And then I could project myself into that state and be like, oh, right, that was me, right? I was once a newborn like this. Someone was looking at me as if I were a particle of God, you know, this divine creature that had just emerged into the world. Like, oh yeah, that's still me, you know? I'm an adult with all these flaws and I've done a lot of things that I'm not necessarily proud of, but that's what the eighth and the ninth step are for. And, you know, acknowledging that like, oh yeah, I still have that divinity the same way that my kids do. Um, so they just reflect it back to me and like show that to me in a way that I can clearly see it. And then I can relate that back to myself. Um, and the other, it's kind of ironic. I don't know if it's ironic really anymore, but I actually attend a church again now. Um, it's very much like a 12 step meeting. I say that to everybody I talk to who's not part of this church because it's very relational and it's uh, the power is very diffused through the group. It's not one man standing at the front and everybody listening the whole time. Um, it's people telling their stories and it's people being very vulnerable and it's a whole different concept of church than what I grew up with. So like experiencing higher power in that environment as community, right? And that I also experienced that of course in my 12 step community as well. Um, so it comes out in all these different ways, like as far as like, what is this, um, this power now? So the other part of that, um, so the other major part of the, the second step, right? The second half of it is that 
this power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So the other big question is, what is sanity? And that also has evolved for me as far as what that looks like, um, depending on where I've been in recovery. And one of the most helpful exercises that my sponsor had me do was actually make a chart of insane versus sane behaviors. And she had me do it on six different areas. Um, they were financial, physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, and creative. So I had to go through and spend, and they could be as long, for each one, they could be as long as they needed to be. But for each of those, I had to describe like, what is insanity? Um, for something physical, what does insanity look like? And for a while for me, it was like continuing to eat, even though I knew I was already full, you know, my body like actually was hurting in some cases and like continuing to eat would be a form of insanity. And so what does sanity look like? It's like, oh, okay, being in touch with my body enough and respecting my body enough to stop when I notice I'm feeling full. And, and what can I do to like breathe through this and get some support through my higher power to be able to stop eating when I'm at those moments. Um, and I'll talk more about the concrete idea of the higher power in relation to that in a moment. Um, the other thing that I have found along the way through like that process of one definition of sanity that I really like is seeing situations the way they really are and acting appropriately rather than reacting only from my emotions. Um, so that has been something that has helped me to return to as far as like what actually is sanity Again, I'll say that one more time, seeing situations for the way they really are and acting appropriately rather than reacting only from my emotions. So, you know, it's the whole like acting versus reacting, some of that. Um, another one on that that's been more uh, recent for me. So before the pandemic started, I didn't even realize what insanity was like emerging again. So again, I've had experiences as a compulsive overeater, as a binger, um, being overweight and yo-yoing up and down in weight for years. Um, more recently, the anorexia has come back, the restriction, the need for control. So that's come out in a different way. It's like my disease is cunning and baffling and powerful. So it will throw all kinds of different insanity at me. So my sponsor had to actually point out like I was getting insane with how little I was eating. And I didn't even realize how bad it was getting until she talked to me about it. So I realized the insanity of what was happening was I was only sitting down for like one meal a day. And like, yes, I have little kids, but like that was not, you know, an excuse for like, oh, I'd maybe shove a little bit in my mouth for breakfast and lunch. And, or I'd be like in the car, you know, having a bite of this or that. And I would only sit down like for dinner each day. And then I was starting to like dump out a little bit of my meals. Um, so like the insanity was like, you know, really, insidious, but it was starting to emerge, you know, in that way. And that was just um, basically last, about a year ago, last fall and last winter is when that really started um, emerging again. So the sanity that I've been working on over the last six, eight months, again, it was before the pandemic, I think it was like in February, um, when my sponsor and I really talked about this, was like, okay, working on sitting down for each of my three meals every day. And that was so hard in the beginning. I was like, I didn't realize how insane I'd gotten until I saw how hard it was to like commit to sitting down for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Like it was painful. Um, and like eating like a, a sane amount of food, you know, and not, not like sneaking and like dumping half of it out in the trash, you know, at the end of the meal, just like move, working my way back to sanity with like, what is sane, middle of the road, food and eating practices look like not you know too much not getting back into my binge behavior but not getting into this restriction behavior so um, that's another example of insanity versus sanity 
Um, also one that I'm currently still working on, I've gotten to a lot of insanity around following the news, which has been a common experience with many people I know of like compulsively, you know, taking in media and news. And there's been a lot of obviously very stressful things happening for all of us around the world. But, you know, in a way that was not, it wasn't sane. It was just like feeding that, that fear and that despair and that anger kind of addictive loop. Um, so the sane alternative was to step back from it, to actually stop checking it. It became like a red light food for me. I kept like playing around with it. Like, oh, maybe today I can just have a little bit, you know, and I'd look at like a couple headlines or a couple stories. And the next thing I know, I was like doom scrolling through, you know, all of these different articles talking about how the world was ending and sometimes literally on fire. Um, so I had to like treat it like a red light food and be like, nope, I'm closing the door on this, I'm stepping back. And like, I've been on news abstinence for, I don't know, it's been, I think a month or more now. Um, and I, again, seeing just the power of it, like exactly how it was like a red light food and how I had to like, look at, okay, the same behavior is, I'm not gonna be checking this. If I do need to know something, my husband will tell me, like he knows that if there's anything major happening, this loving person, you know, who cares about me will tell me instead of like me alone with my phone, you know, in a ton of fear. So those are just some different examples that I still, work is around like if I find myself in insanity, it's like, what's the sanity here? And I don't always know, well, I should say, I, I usually don't know what that is by myself. I have to talk to my sponsor about what that sanity might look like. I have to listen to fellows. Uh, so that brings me to, this is kind of where I'm at now with my higher power. I still definitely have this divine connection kind of feeling like, you know, it's just this force out there that I can feel but I've often been like disconnected um, from that force, been like, where are you God? Like, I'm not feeling anything. I'm showing up, I'm praying, I'm meditating, like what's going on? Uh, so I've had to really just get concrete in my higher power, you know? So it's like, all right, it's my fellows in the rooms. It's my sponsor, you know, my, my higher power is a team. Um, I'm on something we call ourselves the love team. It's my, all of my sponsor siblings with my sponsor, you know, and I feel like the power of all of us together. Um, we communicate with each other regularly. And my sponsor will say, who have you talked to live this week? Like she expects us, like you better have had a live phone call with at least one other person, you know, not just texting, not just leaving voicemails, like who have you actually talked to and connected to? And she will literally say like her mantra is like connect connect, connect. That is the opposite of the disease and isolation. And, you know, I got to tell you as a parent of two young kids, I have resented that at different times. Like, seriously, you're going to ask me to do something else, but I am experiencing the rewards of doing that. And I have to keep doing it, right? It's like taking daily medication or something. I have to keep that regular connection up. And I feel, I really do feel my higher power working through other people. That's another thing my sponsor loves to say is that God's favorite instrument is people. You know, you can't sit there and be like, okay, I'm going to have some prayer and meditation time. I'm going to like really try to like channel my higher power. And then your phone's ringing and you're like, oh, there's this, you know, fellow calling me from program. And why won't the phone stop ringing? I'm trying to connect with my higher power right now. It's like, pick up the damn phone. Your higher power is trying to talk to you through this fellow calling you, you know? So like be ready and aware for all the different ways that your higher power might try to connect with you. And it's sometimes not the way you think that it's gonna look like. Um, so that's really helped me, especially in these last, I don't know, since having kids. And also in the last couple of years, I've had some sort of resurgence of depression I've had to deal with also, especially in the last like, you know, six, eight months, like a lot of people, um, 
I've just finished listening to the whole series of Harry Potter books. So I'm really obsessed with Harry Potter metaphors. So I call them visits from the Dementors. You know, I'm just like, oh God, the Dementors are here. So when I'm in those days, I really have to get concrete with connecting to people, right? My higher power is like all, all connections with people because that's what I can see and feel. And even when I can't physically be with people in this pandemic, I'm like looking at somebody I care about and love on a screen, you know, we're doing FaceTime or I'm like, like hearing their voice. I know them in flesh and blood, like I've been in rooms with them in person. So I like, I have that connection, even if we can't do it right now. Um, but that's what it really looks like. You know, I think of it like, you know, those pictures from space of like the Milky Way galaxy and you just see, you know, the giant swirl of all of the particles and, you know, everything that makes that up. Like that's the big picture, you know, if I were to say like, yeah, that kind of represents my higher power. You know, there's this force, who knows what even created that. Um, there's a story I love from, I forget who originally told it. I wanna say, anyway, it's something outside the rooms, but all these different faith leaders came together for some type of uh, group. And they were they were like, how? what term should we use for God? Because God doesn't work for everybody here. People for, are from all different faiths. And they agreed upon great mystery. And I love that, you know, that it's just like, we don't have to know what that is. We're just going to call it the great mystery. We know it's bigger than us. So anyway, back to this Milky Way galaxy picture. It's like, that's the great mystery to me. I don't know what created that. I just know it's something way bigger than me. But I can tell you that all the tiny particles, like all the people in my life and all the different forces that I can directly connect to, they are like the individual pieces of that galaxy, right? They are the things that I can actually like reach out and touch. If I sit there and try to connect to the whole big picture, that's sometimes overwhelming and it's too abstract. So I really have to like zero in and look at, okay, who can I actually talk to and hear their voice and know like that is my higher power, like talking through them to me. Um, so that connection, I can't like overemphasize the importance of that um, in my recovery today. Um, how am I doing on time, Nicole? Uh, you have a total of 13 minutes left. Okay. Um, so yeah, the other thing I wanted to talk about was this. But also keep in mind, you have Q&A after. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Some of this might come up there. Yeah. I won't try to cover every, every last thing that I might want to say about my higher power. Um, the other part of my concept of my higher power today, and it's taken a while to be able to actually embrace and internalize this because my sponsors talked about it. I've heard people in the rooms talk about it is like God as love. Right. And that's not like a revolutionary idea. That's what many religious people talk about. You know, I heard that in my childhood like really understanding and believing that my higher power or God like is love, like actually is the force of love in this world and in this universe. And I don't mean to be like too dichotomous with anything, but it just helps me clarify these concepts where it's like the, the opposing poles for me are fear and love. And the disease has trained me very well to always be pointed toward fear. I'm just like, that's how I'm, I've been wired from an early age for many different reasons for that. It's like fear. Yep. I'm in tune with you. No problem. Um, and it's all about like turning toward the love, turning toward the love. And that's like my daily prayer pretty much always involves like when I'm in the fear, help me turn toward the love. And again, that's like a big abstract kind of concept, but it's like, how do I see that and experience that in my life? every day. And it's, you know, it's in my kids, it's in the people, you know, of my life when I'm like wondering what to do. I, at this point, I'm clear enough on like, 
okay, that first thought, or, you know, often, like we say, like the first thought of an addict is not to be trusted, but if we take time and pause, like we can trust our first action, you know, if we, especially if we like reach out and, you know, get some help first thought, I still can't trust. And I probably never will be able to trust. Right. Cause it's usually going to be out of fear. Um, so it's like, okay, so fear already gave me that input. So it's like, all right, love, do you want to say something? What do you think I should do here? Right. And again, sometimes I need another person to like help speak that to me. I don't often come up with that on my own, nor should I. Again, this program is about connection and recovery is about connection. So I can't sit here and expect to like come up with all the answers by myself. If I'm doing that, then I'm becoming my own higher power again. So it's like, all right, what would love do here? And it's usually something uncomfortable and scary, you know, like I've also learned love is not like a state of being, it's a state of action. It's like, okay, what, what action do I actually need to take that shows that, that is loving toward me, right? Often it's like, what's a loving action toward my body? Um, I just had this experience actually yesterday and the day before it kind of came up, I saw a video of me dancing, which I love to do. That's actually like a form where I connect with my, my higher power, but I watched this video. I haven't really seen any videos of me dancing recently and I happen to uh, have one. And I was like, I didn't like the way I looked, you know, all these like critical thoughts were coming up. The like voice of anorexia was coming up and just like, oh my God, you need to like definitely restrict more and like, you know, do all these different things. It's like, yeah, and that was all the voice of fear. That was all the voice of the disease. And so I had to sit with that, you know, for a couple days and like, you know, reach out and do some prayer on it and be like, what would love do here? And it's like, love would not have me starve myself in response to seeing this video. You know, love would not like have me deny myself food because on that particular day, you know, and again, the, it, was, it was the disease, not even me. You know, the disease said, oh, I don't like the way your butt looked in those jeans. It's just like, yeah, thanks for sharing, but I'm going to go listen for, to love here. You know, it's like love says you get to take care of yourself, you know, regardless of what you look like. You get to eat nutritious meals, you know, that are enough, not too much, not too little, you know, again, finding that middle of the road and you get to enjoy life no matter what your body looks like, you know, and that's been another big thing for me as my body's gone through a lot of changes in this program. Um, again, not only having two kids, but like just a lot of weight fluctuations where it's like, yeah, love and my higher power as love like wants me to experience joy and wants me to experience, you know, connection and enjoy my body dancing without thinking about what it looks like as it does it, you know? So it like was, that's the ongoing experiences that I have now that I get to practice that idea, you know, it's, and one thing I'll say before we transition into questions, um, is that the, the way the step is written, I kind of have to say it to myself differently sometimes, you know, it's like came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. It sounds very final. It's just like we came to believe and there was no going back. And, you know, I really struggled with that when I first came to program and it's not fixed. It's not like a static, static fixed state for me. It's like, sometimes I have to act as if I believe, you know, that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. And I just have to take the action until, you know, my thinking changes, right? The whole like act our way into right thinking kind of thing. Um, and it's always, it's still very evolving and fluid, right? I do believe that a power greater than, than me can restore me to sanity. Um, so it helps me to kind of just tweak with that past tense form a little bit because I know it keeps me in an active state with this step, you know, that I can continually be coming to believe every day, right? I have to renew that belief every day uh, through my connection to my higher power and through my connection to the steps. Um, so yeah, that might be kind of a good place to stop. 
if you okay. think that might be a good transition, Nicole. Yeah, okay. So we're gonna transition to the uh, sharing and the Q and A. Uh, I'm going to do this part a little bit differently, which is I'm gonna set some guidelines. So the guidelines for sharing or questions are to Stacy about step two. Also, um, I will use a timer as a guideline. Um, uh, so it doesn't mean you have to shut up, but if you could do, we'll do three minutes. I'll tell you when three minutes is up. And if you could just please wrap up um, whatever you're sharing. Also, um, if you've already spoken, if you can let others uh, get a chance to speak again uh, before you uh, share, that would be great. And so, so far we only have one person, so that's fine. Tammy, you wanna go ahead? I do want Hi, to remind people. Tammy. Oh. Hi, Tammy, welcome. Just give me one second. This is Trish, I'm sorry to buddy in. I just wanna remind people, we'll be calling on you by, if you use a phone number, the last four digits of your phone number or the name you use like we did with Tammy, um, so if, and we're being recorded, an audio recording will be posted on our website. So if you don't want us to use your real name, put in whatever name you do want us to use. And then raising your right hand, you do at the bottom of participants. So please, thank you, Tammy, go ahead. Excellent. My name's Tammy. I'm a compulsive overeater. I'm in Melbourne. Um, I feel like I just hit the meeting jackpot. So I've never been to this meeting before, but Megan and Stacey, I love you. I want, I want to be you when I grow up. I hope that someday I am so far programmed up that I can speak as sanely as you just did because it was perfect. So um, I would, um, I love people who have uh, been in program long enough that they refer to God and they refer to the program and their community and they know they didn't do it themselves. And that's really so helpful for me to hear all the time. So my question to you, lovely Stacey, and by the way, you have two little children and let me tell you, you look good. And the fact that you are not sleep deprived <laughs> lunatic right now is a miracle to me. <laughs> But um, your, my question is, I have the same story with you with the God thing, you know, with um, being a childhood, you know, religious person, then being like, no, I don't believe in God at all and I don't go. But now, after three years in program, God is the word I use and it's my favourite thing in the whole world. I am so thankful I have a higher power because I'm not alone anymore, you know. But people sometimes in the real world um, say, do you believe in God? And I still don't know how to answer that because it's not the same God they're asking me, do I believe in? Because I don't believe in a religious one, but I believe in something else. So do you have any words of wisdom about how you would explain that to a lay person who asks you if you believe in God? Please, I see. Yeah, thanks, Tammy. Um, that's a really good question. I, yeah, I definitely encounter that sometimes. I've encountered it in my own family. Um, so I'm the only person in recovery in a 12 step program in my family. I have an older and younger sister um, and two younger brothers. And my parents are very much like still in the disease in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, even so, them, all of my family, like seeing my spirituality evolve, that's been an interesting journey. Like I, I really struggled in the beginning, you know, I almost wanted to hide it from them and, you know, kind of minimize that part. And I was just so afraid of the judgment. And, and I think, you know, there still might even be some judgment there, but I'm at the point now where I don't care what other people think about it because I know what works for me. Um, but yeah, when that question about like, 
because my my dad has directly asked me um, as a very critical person of, you know, believers, people who believe in God, you know, and I'll say, I'm like, yeah, I, I do believe I call it God. I say it's maybe not the idea of what a lot of people think of as God. And I'll talk about how it's like how I think everybody's idea of God is different and you get to have this idea and that I think this um, idea that's handed down to us, you know, it's almost like a cartoonish God of like the man, you know, old man in a, with a long white beard and a robe. It's like, that's, it's, that's just so like limiting and simplistic that uh, it's not even worth even talking about. Um, so I'll, yeah, I'll talk about just kind of like that broader idea that, you know, and again, the, the word term, the term higher power helps there um, because it doesn't have that stigma of the word God, you know, where I say like, yeah, I just do believe that there's a power greater than us. And, you know, and talking about it on a universal level, um, whether or not people agree with this, it's like some, a few people I've talked to who, yeah, don't identify with God or is religious can get behind the idea that like, yeah, I can't acknowledge that the universe is more powerful than I am. You know, like when we think about just like what that represents that like, there, there are forces that are again, nature or that type of thing. Like there are forces that are, that are larger than me. And if you want to call them God, that's fine. You know, if you want to think about that as something else, um, again, some people like ascribe certain sort of, um, anthropomorphic, you know, human sort of characteristics to God and that helps them. And they feel like they've got, you know, a personal relationship with God and, and that helps. It's like, I want everybody to be free to define God as however they want. And so that kind of comes up in the discussion a lot. It's like, yeah, you can say you believe in God and that can mean, you know, 10 different things to 10 different people. And mm -hmm. it's just that like, you know what that belief is for you. Um, and I think that's the important thing. And yeah, and just as an aside, I think for me in program too, that like the idea that like, oh, God is, is big enough and then personal enough that God cares about me. That was one thing I had to mm -hmm. like, you know, work through was like, oh, God isn't just so big and abstract that like God doesn't even know who I am, you know, <laughs> where it's like, no, God knows me, you know, um, it's that really hard idea to understand, but where it's like, oh, and God, and my food is important enough for my God, to, for God to help me with it, you know, that type of thing too. So I don't get into all of that nitty gritty with, you know, people asking about God, but yeah, it just makes me think about that idea. It's like, everybody's free to define that for themselves. And that's one of the things I love about this program. So I hope that answers your question. Oh, thank you. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Tammy. Thank you, Tammy. And before we move on to our next, I do want to do a pu public service announcement, which is to just quickly for to remind people that according to our seven traditions, we are self-supporting through our own contributions. Contributions can be made by PayPal to our email address, info at oarise.org. There is also a contribute now button at oarise.org website. And Angela, you have a question. Angela, where are you calling from? My car down <laughs> by the river. Um, I don't have a question. I just had a comment. And I just want to just thank uh, Stacy and Megan for both of their shares. And one thing that really stood out to me, one, treating the news like a red light food. That was so helpful to hear today. Thank you. And then two, turning toward love instead of fear. And the first thought coming to my mind not being like questioning after that. So thank you so much for sharing that. Um, that's all I want to say. Thank you so much for both of your shares. Thank, thank you, you, Angela. Okay, Carla. We need some more questions, people. So after Carla, please. You guys should be called Fat Acid Anonymous, not Overeaters Anonymous. 
I'm sorry. Carla. Oh, was that a bomber? I think so. I just removed him or her. Okay. Don't know. Wendy. <laughs> Wendy, go ahead. Wendy S. Oh, here we go. Um, let's see. Uh, I, I'm trying to let you see my face. So you can see I'm a real person. Um, thank you very much. Wendy, Wendy, we lost you. Yeah, your, your bandwidth isn't quite enough. If you turn off your video, we might be able to hear you. She's not on anymore. Hear me? Oh, there you are. Okay, Wait. I had to. Um, I With two little kids, I wanted to ask how what your daily practice is, because I believe that we are many times the sum of our habits. So what are your habits? Thank you. Thanks, Wendy, that's a great question. I love the sum of our habits, yeah, phrase. Um, yeah, and it's a really good, it's like, let's get down to brass tacks. Like, what does a day actually look like for any of us? Um, I have to get up, I have to be willing to get up earlier than my children. Um, and so the ideal, and I do this like, I'd say maybe four or five days a week, I can manage this where I get up before them and I, I go down to where I am now. This is like where I get a little privacy in my house in my basement office. And I do my prayer. I have a couple daily readers. I read those. I read the OA uh, for today. Um, that's one of them every day. Um, and I have another one. I read those and I get down on my knees and I say my prayer, which often involves, um, again, helping me find the willingness and courage to follow what love is asking me to do. Um, that's kind of what it sounds like today. And I know that's a big you know, description, but I can apply it to specific things as they come up uh, to help me you know, stand in the face of fear and choose love instead, and you know, other variations on that. And then I try to do, you know, I might get in a minute of meditation, like a gold star day is like, my kids are still sleeping long enough where then I have like maybe 10 minutes of meditation. Like that's just amazing. And then I also, part of that time I call into the, the 645 um, Pacific sunrise meeting. And so that like is how I like transition into my day. And then my kids are up and like, I've started my day uh, today. For example, I did not do that. I, I wanted to sleep in and it felt like the right thing to do. And sometimes I just do that because I need sleep. And so I, I just got down on my knees before this meeting. You know, I was like, I, I'm still committed. I've told my sponsor, some days I actually forget or the day's so crazy, you know, I, I don't get down on my knees and I'll literally do it like as I'm going to bed. And I'm like, hey, still prayed, like still got down on my knees, it still counts. <laughs> and, you know, I've actually been in bed and I'm like, I'm not actually willing to get up and get on my knees, but I'm gonna sit here and say a prayer. I'm like, that still counts. Uh, so I have a, you know, a broad definition and there's like what I would love to happen that sometimes happens. And there's just what does happen in real life. And yeah, like again, for today, I was like, I need to do a prayer before I share on this meeting. So I just did that and it just helped me show up for all of you. So yeah, it looks like what it looks like, you know, on different days. So thanks so much for that question. Awesome. Thank you, Wendy. Uh, next is Bonnie Jean. Unmute. Hello, Stacy. You when you right before you started talking about you know the physical, the insanity, and the sanity, it's like you made went through a li list of things to check that with. I think it was sort of like you said spirituality. Were there some other things that you said that you, you would check? You know what's the insane thing and the same thing. You went through a list. What was that? 
Yeah. So this is an exercise, my sponsor, um, that Nicole had me do where it's six categories. So you make like a two column, um, list for each of them. And the categories are once again, financial. Yes. So financial, cool. it's like, what does insanity and sanity look like for your financial right. life? Um, right. physical, yeah. What does insanity and sanity look like, uh, for you physically, emotional, yeah. okay. spiritual, uh, mental, Spiritual. and creative mental and creative thank you that 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 was that is that's really cool because it's like yeah it really makes it concrete and then what you said about sanity seeing situations how really they are and acting appropriately than reacting from my emotions right mm-hmm. yes, yeah exactly yeah oh yeah i mean that's that's i i right now in my life it's like I'm stepping back. It's like something goes in through my head and it's like, I'm actually able to step back today and say, okay, you know, there, but for the grace of God, how was was I at that age? I mean, whatever, but I don't have to say it. You know, I don't have to have to end up making amends about it. I can actually do something. Mm -hmm. And uh, thank you. Thank you. That that's a, that's a good writing assignment for me to do about sanity and sanity. So thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. It was, I still go back and review it and I'll, I go and add new ones sometimes, you know, if I feel like I need some clarity on something happening in my life right now, it's a really helpful exercise. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for saying that because that that's exactly what I need to do about something that, that's not on that list. So that's perfect. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you, Bonnie Jean. Okay. So uh, I want Bob to know that I see your question. So, but first we're going to do Kathy. And then just so you know, Stacy, we have a question from the chat. Okay, Kathy, go ahead. Hi, Stacy. can you hear me? Yes, I can. I just wanted to thank you for your share. I got a lot out of it. Um, I just thought it was really great. So I just wanted to thank you. No question. Thank you, Kathy. I should say too, it's like a disclaimer, like anything I'm saying is just what I've heard from my fellows and in meetings and it's been filtered just like through me. So I just, this is my like gratitude to everyone who's taught me and now it's just coming out to all of you in my own version of saying it. So yeah, thank you. Uh, Okay, so the question from Bob is, you talked about a faith community that you referenced as different than others. Is this an online or an in-person community? Um, I don't know how specific I want to get on this since I don't want to talk, you know, specifically too much about, uh, it's you know, an outside faith community. I could like directly connect and give some of that information um, if that seems best. Um, It's a, I'll just say it's a, a progressive kind of Lutheran church that's also a uh, it's a community center so there's a lot of community organizing that's part of it um, so it's like liberation theology kind of approach you know where it's like how do we achieve freedom for all people by using you know the teachings of Jesus and you know God is love and that type of thing as far as anything else I don't know if it'd be appropriate for me to like you know say specifically what it is or yeah but I can I can give that to someone privately if we want to connect information i can do that okay all right thank you so much um right now we don't have anyone with any hands up is there anyone who and yet we still have some time is there anyone who would like 
to before we shift at three o'clock, we'll start step three. Um, I'm really strict with the, uh, the only reason why I'm such a, you know, time tracker is because this is what we advertised. And so some people are going to, you know, only join at three because they're expecting to hear about step three. So I don't want to start step three early, which means we've got 10 minutes. So Stacy, is there anything you want to sort of thoughts that you've had? I, I have a, a bit of a question, okay. if you, just, you know, just to keep you talking sure. is um, unless someone, you know, pops up, then I'll interrupt myself, which is, yeah. you know, came to believe in a power greater than myself that can restore me to sanity. How has your idea of what sanity is changed? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Really good question, Nicole. Um, and I think, yeah, maybe just sort of summarize, like I, I mentioned earlier, like what things looked like for me early in program. Um, and it'll be 12 years in January um, that I started in AA and I got to, like I said, OA a few months later. Um, it looks, yeah, it looks a lot different. It's like when I compare the life I live now, and this has come up a lot in my step work, as Nicole knows, like working the eighth and ninth step and, you know, sort of working through some of that, like regret of things we've done of like, oh my God, now that I can see this clearly, I can't believe that's what I used to do. But yeah, like early in recovery, it was just like not drinking and not binging, you know, that was like the like sanity that I could achieve. And there were still a lot of other insane behavior as far as like what I was doing in my relationships and, you know, what I was doing on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's kind of like the road gets narrower, you know, that people talk about, not only like with the food itself, um, you know, my, what I actually eat, my diet is more limited in in a lot of ways, I don't say in every way than what it was. And when I came in, um, but I, and I, if you told me what I eat today, like if you told me then, you know, what I am eating today, I would have freaked out about it and like worried about being deprived, but I feel like totally satisfied today. So it's like, you know, those things change over time. So it's that, yeah, that same way with with sanity as well, where it's like my, de my definition has gotten clearer. I feel like I'm more on the beam with like what healthy people consider sanity, you know, um, of like most of the time that I'm where I'm acting in integrity, you know, in ways that I can look at of like, oh yeah, this is what I think like most healthy people would do in this situation and, you know, call that sane. And I can spot like, you know, insanity a lot more clearly or a lot sooner, you know, than I used to be able to. And it keeps, you know, keeps evolving as far as like what's happening in my life. Like now as a parent, and Nicole knows this and anyone who knows me in recovery um, is like insanity. I can have days that feel like they're filled with insanity. I mean, living with a two-year-old toddler is like, they are insane. Like they literally have like no frontal lobes in their brains and they just will do like completely irrational things like all day long. So it's like, there is insanity like up in my face. It feels like sometimes the entire day and again, it's like, well, what does sanity look like here? You know, not screaming at my kid for everything they do. You know, sometimes like, again, speaking of prayer, I'll go take a break and get on my knees in the bathroom. Like while my kids are like screaming outside the door, you know, I'm like, I just need to get myself away so I can try to maintain my sanity here and not do something I regret. Um, you know, it's those types of things where it's like, I wouldn't have been able to, to describe that to you before I had kids, but like, that's a whole exercise in sanity versus insanity that I have a daily practice in, whether I like it or not, um, today. And that also happens in like my work, um, you know, where like my work life keeps evolving and there's been different things that have come up around, 
Um, me having to advocate for myself, like getting paid on time, you know, situations like that, where it's like, oh, the same thing to do is to like assert my needs here and turn it over and not get into this like insane circle of like making excuses for the other person and, you know, doing all these other kinds of strange things where I'm wasting energy. Um, and then if, you know, the situation calls for it, like making a change and setting a boundary and leaving the relationship, if that's, you know, what I need to do. So it's like, there's all these variations, you know, like these gradations of like what sanity and insanity can look like in any area of our lives. And I think that's the gift of program. It's where it's like given me that like pair of glasses, if you will, or a flashlight that I can like shine on things and see like, oh yeah, I can see like what it's sanity versus, you know, insanity looks like in this situation now. And it's constantly evolving for me. So I hope that answers a question. Yeah. And I actually have a question from Sylvia. Sylvia, can you unmute? Hopefully, yeah, can you hear me? Yep, we can hear you. Great. So um, I heard Stacey talk a little bit about uh, AA or being in another A, and I'm curious about her experience um, with attending other sister programs, kind of similarities, maybe in differences in, the, in how the steps work. Um, and, and also maybe about balance, if, if she's got more than one that she's pursuing, how she balances her, I don't know, attention across those? Like attention across programs, Sylvia? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can speak to that. Thank you. Great to hear your voice. Um, yeah, I've, that's been a, that was a struggle for me for a while. You know, like most of my energy was going into my first program, which that's where it needed to, to be. And the way my experience has gone is like, I've addressed the things in the order that they will kill me. So it's like drugs and alcohol would kill me first if I kept going with those. And so that's what needed to be addressed. And, you know, food was very much like a close second. So, you know, that was like right there. And I was working both programs, you know, kind of interchangeably, I'd say for a few years. And then it was very clear that like OA needed to be my priority where I would, won't get too much into my drinking story, but it's like the desire to drink had left me and it wasn't like a, you know, daily struggle. Obviously I wanted to keep still working the steps in all areas of my life, but it was like, okay, OA is where I need to be right now. I'm still really struggling with the food. Um, I want some freedom there. I found some freedom from these other substances. Let's, you know, and I had to really take some time away and it was a hard transition. You know, I'd had a lot of built up a lot of relationships and, you know, trust and all that routine, all that type of thing in my other program. But it was like, okay, this is where, this is where like my higher power is pointing me, you know, and I could tell. So this is what I've developed over the past several years. You know, OA has really been my main focus where my main relationships are and my main time. Um, and then I've also turned toward a couple other programs now, um, the relationship programs, because I feel like, you know, once you're in 12 steps long enough, uh, for me, at least, there's no area of my life that hasn't been touched by disease and the disease and dysfunction. And then there's not an area of my life that the 12, step, the 12 steps can't help. Um, so it's like the ongoing like relationship, like all that tricky stuff um, that I've had to direct a little more attention to now, but I still have always kept my thread in OA because you have to eat every day, right? And my relationship to food has gone through a lot of fluctuations, as I said, I've had two kids in this program. I've gone through different periods of like being, feeling crazy and hormonal and like overeating. And then more recently I've been in a, a restriction, like 
re um, replay of anorexia, like coming back kind of to like ground zero of my, you know, eating disorder where that started for me. So it's like, okay, all right, thanks disease. Now we're going to be working on this. So I, yeah, I don't know where it'll go from here, but I'm committed to continuing OA just because again, that stability in my food is such a foundation for like all the rest of my sanity in my life and in my relationships and everything else. So, you know, it's like, even if I'm stable, I feel like just the maintenance is really important for me staying in OA. And then I get to work some of the other So thank you for 52 people have stayed on. That's pretty amazing. This is, you know, this is the third hour. Okay, so I would like to take a moment to just ask that um, I be of service to this meeting um, and that whatever I say is of benefit to you um, and not necessarily my personal agenda. Uh, I do wanna say that uh, speaking is always a very vulnerable experience for me because I try to, that's what I actually try to do is to actually be vulnerable and tell the truth. Um, and uh, I also wanna take an opportunity before I start speaking so I don't forget uh, to thank uh, Sherry and Trish and anyone else behind the scenes uh, for putting this together, this OA Rise, it's really amazing. And I don't know, I just feel really blessed that I know you both. Um, so my part is step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood God, which is how um, I like to say it. Uh, I think I've, I've thought a lot about this. I, I'm not someone who writes an outline or writes notes. I just sort of think about it and pray about it and then trust, you know, that whatever I say on the day is all that I need to say. Um, so the first thing that kind of uh, comes to mind is uh, something a little, I don't know if it's a parable or what it's called, but it's pretty popular in the rooms, which is, you know, three frogs are sitting on a log and one of them makes a decision to jump. How many frogs are left on the log? And the answer is three, because the one that made the de decided to jump just decided to jump. So making a decision is something that happens. Uh, Earl H likes to say, you can make a, you can do steps one, two, and three on the couch, you know? Um, and so what really comes up for me is, is that, you know, there's making a decision and then there's the embodiment of that decision. And um, we all have uh, our wounds. And the shape of my wound was, is that I grew up with people who thought love was a concept or a feeling. Um, and so I was very secure in the fact that people loved me, but their actions did not actually reflect what love is. Um, and so it really was through the dis discipline of recovery that I learned that making a decision is actually only the first part of this extension into action. 
So for example, if you're new in the rooms, brand new, and you're like, how do I know if I've taken step three? Um, what was said to me is, you know that you've taken step three when you start doing steps four through nine. You know, that's how you know that you've taken step three. Otherwise, you're still in step three. You're not, you haven't really, you know, put into action any of your decisions. Um, and so I really want to focus my piece on how I know every day that I am making a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand God. Um, so that's kind of going to be the focus of my talk, uh, like a super, super quick sketch, you know, of my story that, um, I, I have to admit I'm really bored of is, uh, you know, I was a little kid. I was normal weight. I loved sugar, um, did a lot of crazy stuff to get sugar, but I was such a hyperactive little kid that, you know, um, it didn't really show, uh, my candy obsession, you know, just in the seventies passed for normal. Uh, and then uh, puberty hit. I was not ready for puberty. Um, I'm a survivor of different uh, forms of abuse. And so when all of a sudden uh, my body became sexualized, I, I just was like, no, we're not doing that. And, uh, and that's when I gained a lot of weight as a way to desexualize my body and take up a lot of space. Um, I, did a little bit of dieting, but not really. Um, I maybe did a few years of it. Uh, and then I hit a place where I just thought I was going to be fat the rest of my life. And that was just what I thought. And uh, I went into another program where I got to deal with um, being an adult child of uh, two alcoholic parents. And that's where my recovery uh, started. And then by the time I hit OA, it was like my fourth program. I had no idea what OA was. And it's the only 12-step meeting that the very first meeting I cried. Um, and I am, uh, I, I'm not a crier. Uh, it's taken a lot of years of recovery and therapy to get to a place where I actually get weepy and cry. So for me to cry at a 12 step meeting at the time was a really big deal. And part of it was um, that profound feeling of identification that other people felt the way that I felt about food and about my body and my body image dysmorphia. But the tears were also this sort of fear about let, having to let go of my best friend. So, um, so that was in 1998. I had, um, uh, I lost the weight slowly, by the way. So if that's your experience, that was mine. I lost about 10 pounds every two years. Uh, it had for me a lot to do with adjusting being in a smaller body and feeling safe in a smaller body. I was abstinent. It was just losing the weight was very slow. Um, and then uh, when I lost all the weight, I uh, had some trauma memories come up and that really questioned my faith. And I had to hit, uh, that was my first major relapse. And um, I hit a deeper level of recovery and program and it sort of forced 
uh, a deeper understanding of steps one, two, and three. It also uh, forced me, or I chose, to um, get an AA sponsor to sponsor me in OA in a very old school AA way. And so um, that's when I started identifying as a sugar addict and a bulimic. And I started going, so even though I was an OA person, um, my, uh, because of my sponsor, I was going to open AA meetings and I was learning a lot of the tools of uh, AA and listening to a lot of the AA speakers. So my OA program has a very, very strong AA foundation. Um, and then in, I think it was 2013 or whatever, I had my second major relapse, which was uh, a shame-based relapse where I um, sabotaged my own recovery and, um, and I now sort of do workshops on shame. Uh, so uh, I think I have six years now. I, I'm, to be honest, I don't, I don't remember. Um, it, it's in my phone somewhere. I think I've, my dates. Uh, yeah, actually, I think it's, because I think it's 2014. Um, so anyway, so that's a little bit of a sketch for me. So, from that first major relapse in 2006 um, is when I really hit a real deep level of step three. And for me, because of what was happening and because of the emotional pain that I was in, my, that is when I really got concrete on that my higher power was the process of recovery. And that that's what I believed in. Now, it didn't mean that I didn't believe in something else or something more, but that was the aspect of my higher power that I didn't have any doubt. There was no questioning it. There was no nothing. It was solid foundation for me. So... I love theology and I love to discuss theology and I love whatever. And, and I, I still love to do that. Um, but my program is sort of like old math. It's like one plus one equals two every day. And so there are certain aspects of my recovery program that the tools that and, and engaging in the process of recovery that for me are so concrete that they're like math. If I do these things, comma, then my life gets better. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's pretty straightforward. If I do these things, then I am in the process of recovery and I am moving towards or maintaining abstinence. So, um, so in that sense, I don't get very theoretical about step three, or I don't get very discursive about it. I get very um, concrete, action-based. What am I doing today that demonstrates that I have taken the third step? Now, like I said, in the very beginning of recovery, you know, doing my doing four, five, six, seven, and eight, nine, and then of course progress 10, 11, 12 was a demonstration that I had taken the third step. 
but I think I'm, I celebrated 27 years uh, in October. And now my life is such that instead of just looking at, am I going to meetings and am I doing step work? I actually look at my life every day as, am I living a life in recovery today? And so that comes with some daily practices. I like someone earlier that said, I'm not going to be able to quote her particularly, but that I'm a sum of my habits. You know what I mean? And that basically for me, the third step is a sum of my behaviors. So I'll just go through them um, uh, to the best of my ability uh, since I didn't write them down. But for example, first thing in the morning, um, I, and again, I also, anything I say that sounds wise in any way or has any sort of clarity to it anyway, I heard in a meeting. This is what collective consciousness is. This is how we get this collective wisdom. So anything that sounds asinine or sketchy or dumb, that's, I'll take credit for that because um, that's probably my ego and my disease getting in the way of my articulation. But anyway, so um, most, I think pretty much all of what I'm going to share with you, uh, I got direction from someone else or I heard someone else do it. And then I've cobbled together um, a program of recovery that every day demonstrates that I am taking the third step. So first and foremost, something that I learned was to roll out of bed onto my knees. Um, and that once I'm down there to do the third step prayer. So I want to dilate on that for just a little bit. So I didn't used to do the third step prayer um, for all the reasons that uh, Stacy mentioned. Um, I had a lot of resistance towards the God thing, towards any of that. Um, for people who are tracking, um, I'm a pagan Buddhist, New Thought, Christian Jew, part-time Hindu Muslim. I'm technically, uh, by definition, I'm technically an atheist. Uh, because I don't believe in ethical monotheism. However, I do believe in something divine, mysterious, and beautiful. And that's as far as I'm able, I'm willing to define it. Basically, I believe in love and anything that's less than loving um, is, is really not uh, God to me. So, um, so anyway, so I didn't used to do the third step prayer and I certainly didn't used to pray. And I sure as hell didn't used to pray on my knees. And during that first major relapse, um, I was in such a place of desperation. And again, I had this AA sponsor who had graciously agreed to sponsor me in OA, give me directions. And I, for the first time, Miss Rebellious, don't tell me what to do, was just always just said yes to her. I just, if she even knew what was going on in my mind, she'd be so hurt and offended. But when she gave me directions, instead of saying like the thoughts that were in my head, which were my disease, like resistance thoughts, my desperate loving like you need to save your ass here sister thoughts would voice would come out and just say yes i just i mean i cannot tell you how many things she would ask me to do that my brain would want to say something and i'd have to intervene on my own behalf and be like shut up you're killing us 
And then what came out of my mouth was like, of course I'll do that, you know, or yes, that sounds wonderful. I'd love to do that. I mean, it was ridiculous, but she said that I had to pray on my knees and I had to pray out loud. And I have to tell you that having done that the first time at the age of 36 was weird. It was like, I cannot tell you, I did, I was not, I think it was just weird. And I just was like, man, I mean, talk about, because I was not raised in a church. I was not, I mean, my, my family is Catholic, but my dad was atheist. And I mean, it was just like, so their agreement was like hands off. And so for me to be on my hands and knees, like praying out loud, that for me was such a demonstration of talk is cheap that it's one thing to walk around and be like oh yeah i believe it's something oh yeah it's like and and then when you're asked to do something whatever it is that embodies your belief in something like you have to show up and actually demonstrate i'm trying no one's in the room with me you know what i mean i'm the only one in that room but i'm on my knees about to do a prayer and it's either like okay i am either a crazy person on my knees talking out loud to nothing or i'm a person of faith setting an intention and connecting to a power greater than myself and i decided to be a person of faith that was connecting to a power greater than myself now i'm going to share some some insights for me some people had a really easy time with this stuff. I did not have an easy time with this stuff. So I am going to just share my experience around this. So first of all, third step prayer, the language killed me. I was like, no, no. I mean, so much thou and wilt and he, I was just like, this was painful. And, and so I had to work so hard around it and I wasn't allowed to change the words. I wasn't allowed to like, I was like, I had to say the third step prayer as it was written out loud. I was like, oh God, you're killing me. So what I did was, is I took each line and I, I wasn't allowed to change the words, but I could think about what it meant. And so for, and so one of the things that I called myself on when I was having to do this homework assignment that was killing me was I was like, I remember being in a meeting and struggling with like, oh my God, this, I'm, you know, this week I'm going to have to do the third step prayer. How am I going to do this? And then I made fun of myself because I was like, you know what, Nicole, if this was some sort of Apache prayer or Saskatchewan prayer or a Loney prayer or Mohawk prayer or some sort of indigenous culture prayer with language that you didn't even understand, you would be so into that. You know what I mean? Like, so it just brought out the hypocrisy around that, you know, ancient prayers, as long as they're in some language that I don't understand or, or from some sort of romanticized culture that I would totally say out loud. And so, what that did for me is it one it it called me on my my bs and it gave me a frame up and it was like why don't you think of this third step prayer that's in the big book as the prayer of your ancestors because guess what it is so all of a sudden that completely 
completely shifted the frame for me. Like, oh, okay. I can stop arguing with this language that whether I like or don't like, and instead I can think of the, this is the prayer that Dr. Bob and Bill W and the first 100 said. And because of them, and because of the beginning of the AA program, I have a chance to have a life today through several 12-step programs. So I'm going to actually get on my hands and knees and say the prayer of my ancestors. And when I, and so that really helped that create a huge, not just a willingness, but a like, oh, I can totally sign up for that. Then the other thing that I had to do was I took each line of the prayer, like, you know, and including the first word, God, and then I offer myself to the, like each line, and I had to write what that meant to me so that I couldn't, I wasn't allowed to just parrot the words of the prayer. I had to actually mean the prayer. So for example, for me, the first word God, I was like, right away, I'm like stuck. So I just changed. Now in AA, they often talk about God as group of drunks. And I was like, oh, that's a great acronym. Doesn't really apply to me. And so I changed it to group of dames. You know what I mean? And I thought that was awesome. So I wrote God. And then next to it, I wrote group of dames. And then it said, I offer myself to thee. Now I had to take that line and I thought, okay, what I like about that line is I have free will. I absolutely believe in that concept. I have a choice. No one is making me do this. I'm the one that is agreeing to offer myself to sign up for recovery. And I, that was really important to me that I'm not um, an automaton, I'm not a marionette, like I am my own person and I have a lot of self-will and you know what? I get to use that to make this decision and to offer myself to this group, to these group of women and just be like, teach me your ways, you know? And, and again, go, I'm not going to go through the whole prayer. I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. I really liked that idea. You know what I mean? Like I'm joining this program of recovery with all of these, at the time it was all of these women, and I'm going to agree to their agenda of recovering and being a, a safe space for other people to come. Like I'm going to, I'm going there and I'm offering my services. I'm offering everything. And then it goes on and, you know, may I do thy will, thy power, thy way of life, and I liked that, like I'm basically joining a team, you know, as Stacy said, like the love team. And I'm like, I want to put aside my personal private agenda and I'm going to sign up for the love team. And I want to know whatever the love team's agenda is, sign me up for that. Like, I want to contribute my resources, my intelligence, my time and my energy to being part of the solution here and to help heal the, the, the effects of this disease. Like, so in the morning, when I roll onto my knees and I do the third step prayer, for me, that's every morning saying, I am a member of the love team and I choose to live in recovery today. And for me to, to embody that decision is how I start my day. 
Now, the other thing I do, because, um, and again, this is me, take what you like and leave the rest. I'm just talking about how I take the decision and I turn it into an action, which demonstrates to myself and to the world that I've actually made a decision. You know what I mean? And so I really kind of want to dilate on that for just a second. If, if you decide that you want to call me to connect with me, to ask me how I'm doing, to see, to check in, if you make that decision and never pick up the phone and call me, that thought has no impact on me at all. I mean, it's just absolutely useless to me. So it's really how you take that, that impulse and you extend it into an action that I realized that you made that decision. And then when you call, like if you have the thought, oh, I should call Nicole and see how she's doing and, and find out what's going on in her life. You know, if you have that thought and then you call me, I get to feel that you made the decision to connect to me and reach out and, and reap the benefits of that. So again, uh, now, so I do the third step prayer first thing. Now, what I choose to do is uh, because I have a very hyperactive mind that would love to start problem solving right away. Um, I instead in the first in the morning put on my favorite speaker, uh, Father Terry. Now, for some people, it could be uh, a music or it could be a yoga or it could be um, a certain song or whatever, but just something that, so I, or, you know, some people would be waking up and going right into a meeting. The point is, is that I don't want my brain unattended. Like I want my brain to remember that, you know, we're in the solution today. So sometimes during the night I have stressful dreams or I have anxiety or I wake up and I want to just immediately get into work or I want to immediately. So for me to spend about 15 or 20 minutes while I'm getting ready, listening to something recovery focused is a really good way to set my day. So that's, that's, that's another thing I do that sort of demonstrates or reinforces like, okay, we're actually starting this day from a place of being a member of the love team. Now, the other thing that I do is um, not necessarily, I'm not going to go totally throughout the day, but I have a food plan. So with my food plan, I have my, my breakfast, um, I have my lunch, I have my dinner, I have my snacks. Um, I also, I have a food group. And so I practice, um, again, if I've made a decision to, uh, you know, turn my life over the care of God, for me, the care of God is the program of recovery, then that means every day I engage in the tools of recovery, because that's the program. Otherwise, how do you know I'm in the program? Now, I don't necessarily have to do all nine tools, especially considering that when I started, there were only five. But, you know, it's like definitely like I have a food plan. I follow my food plan. And just for people to know, I've had food plans that were very loose. When I was in the beginning, it was three meals, two snacks. And then I've had very structured uh, food plans. Uh, weighed and measured everything, which for me was really important because to go from eating anything I wanted whenever I wanted, 
I have to say that like the 10 years that I weighed and measured my food was so important because for the first time there were boundaries around my food. For the first time I learned what um, a serving was. I remember the first time I weighed out four ounces of red meat, I was floored. I was like, that's a serving. And the first time I weighed out like half a cup of rice. I mean, so I, I've definitely done that. Um, now I have a kind of, I don't weigh and measure my food, but to be honest, I feel comfortable doing that because I know what servings look like. I will say that I weigh and measure my nuts because peanut, you know, my mixed nuts, it's good that I keep those weighed and measured. Um, so I have a food plan and then I report my food. Uh, I have, um, meetings that I go to, you know, I came into the room and I was told three for maintenance, four for recovery. Um, and that means that, you know, if I really, if I want to keep progressing, then um, it's four meetings a week, uh, three meetings a week minimum will, you know, keep my recovery stable, but I'm, you know, it's not that great. Also, just so you know, I'm also in multiple programs. So that's, you know, four meetings for me of all of my my meetings combined. Two of those have to be OA because if I'm not abstinent, I, abstinent, I don't have anything else. Uh, the other thing that I do every day is I check in with my sponsor. Um, I send my sponsor a check-in. Uh, the other thing that I do, so meetings, um, checking in, connecting to my sponsor. I have uh, people in my fellowship that I connect with uh, live. Um, and, uh, I know in OA, there's lots of texting. I'm, I'm on a lot of text groups. Um, but I also have my OA, uh, my inner tribe of OA where we'll talk on the phone. Um, I'm a big believer that at least once a week, you should be talking live to someone. And that's actually, I think that's incredibly lenient. When I first started, it was three calls a day. And you only had the choice of live. I mean, there was no, you know what I mean? So I think now it's gotten very gracious with different lifestyles. And I think a lot of that has to do with so many people in the rooms are introverts. And then also there's just a um, much more demand on our time and attention than there has ever been historically with the advent of um, smartphones. Uh, and then let's see, I'm always, I always have a service position. Um, I'm always doing service. I have sponsees. Uh, so every day I'm an engaging in a behavior that demonstrates that I have taken the third step. Um, I'm not really sure where else I want to go from this. I kind of would like to maybe open it up to more, um, since this is the last hour, uh, to any questions, if anyone has any questions um, or any particulars around actually like how to uh, work a program or what it means to work a program. Oh, I'm also, I will say, of, of course, I forgot that I'm, I'm always working a step. So as soon as I finish step 12, I'm back on step one. And because I'm always working a step, um, now there's not a lot of time pressure on how long it takes me to do a step because now life actually is where my step work really sort of where the, what do they call it? Where the rubber meets the road. 
Um, so in the beginning, I had very formal step works that I had to do every week. You know, this assignment was due week to week to week to week to week. And then once I sort of took care of that, now my step works are, it's much more of a graduate level where um, I'm working a step and then my sponsor and I will talk about how, oh, isn't it interesting how my life, these things are coming into my life because I'm working on this issue or these things, you know, it's more fluid and it's much more co-creative with the experiences that I'm having. And then we'll sort of move on to like whatever the next step is. It's much, uh, it's much more fluid and much less rigid, but it's definitely, it just keeps going. And we just finished, like I finished going through the traditions again. So that was really um, timely and important. So I'm just trying to think if there's anything about made a decision to turn my will and my life over the care of God as I understood God. Well, I think that I can certainly before, um, I don't see anyone with any questions. So um, I think that what I can do is well, my concept of, of God certainly has shifted and changed. You know, um, when I came in, oh, Carol, great. Let me finish this and then I'll call on you. Um, you know, when I, when I came in, I didn't have a concept of God. And so let me just speak to this for a second because um, I, I came in the rooms and here's, here's a very common mistake that um, some newcomers make, and it's not all newcomers, I just know I'm not the only one, is that I come into the rooms and people start talking about like um, the promises and turning my life over to God. And back in the day in the 90s, a lot of times that people would, when they would speak, when these old timers would speak, they would say, my life was shite, I did the steps, my life is amazing, I got everything I wanted. Um, you know, my life was shite. I made the, it took the third step, you know, did all the work. And now my life is amazing. I've got the wife, the job, the car, everything. Now, as a newcomer, what I heard was, okay, I'm in a lot of pain. If I do these, these steps, if I turn my will and my life over to this God that I'm supposed to sort of come up with, which could be a doorknob, which made no sense to me. But if I do this thing, and if I believe in some sort of God, which I got to write about and decide, then my life is going to have, I'm going to have this, and I'm going to have this, and I'm going to have the job, and I'm going to have, and that's, that's what I believed. Because that's what was at the time really being sold you know? Um, and, and so basically what people didn't realize is that they were selling a Santa Claus God. If you behave, if you turn your will and your life over, you go to meetings, you do all this step work, then you will get the job, the partner, the kids, the whatever, you will get the promised land. And so when at 13 years, I had a personal crisis hit, and, you know, it could be for any of us. For me, it was something really personal, but it could have been a divorce. It could have been a serious illness. It could have been whatever. The point is, is that at 13 years, I was like, um, I, I can't, I felt, I felt that I had been gypped. 
I felt that I had been lied to because I expected after doing all of that work to have an amazing life. And instead I had this horrible tragedy happen to me. So my con so what that did though, in the very beautiful way is it had me really understand what a higher power was, what the program really offered me, um, what it meant to have a life beyond my wildest dreams. And in that way, my concept of a higher power really did shift and change. So with that, um, I'm gonna just go ahead and end that and turn it over to questions. So if you have any questions for me, I'd like this to be a, a question. So if you have a question or anything, please let me know. So Carol, you've been very patient. Um, thank you, Nicole. And I, your share was very powerful, thank you. And I'd like to thank uh, Stacy and, um, I'm sorry, just forgot, Megan, Megan. for their shares. They were all very helpful. Um, so my question is about your working the steps on a continually revolving basis. Yeah. Do you, and I'd like, do you pin that down? Can you pin that down a little bit better? Do you, do you like focus on a, on an issue and take that issue through the steps? Yeah, I can speak to that. So uh, in the beginning, I had to do a very formal process through the steps. Um, every step, there were a lot of, um, uh, so, okay, so I'm going to also use this to answer Peggy's question, which uh, define what you mean to work the steps. Okay, so when I first came in the rooms, uh, working the steps was doing the, the workbook. So, and again, I came in in 98 and so I did the workbook and for me, and, and just so you know, like I had a sponsor sort of in name only, I was very resistant to, you know, I came in and I surrendered to the degree that I could surrender. And so I, um, you know, I did the workbook and I answered the questions because I'm a good girl and a good student. And that for me was sort of working the steps. The thing that I did right was I certainly made an effort. I certainly told the truth in my writing. And, um, and there were a lot of people on my amends list that I was not willing to make amends to because they had hurt me a lot more than I thought I had ever hurt them. So that was my first pass through the steps. It was, I had a sponsor that was very unstructured and very like, yeah, just do this, just do this. And then I hit that relapse in 2006 and I got a, what we call often in the rooms, a scary sponsor. Um, and that's one that it's like, we had to meet every Sunday, um, every week I had homework assignments. For every step, there were about five or 10 questions that I had to answer. Um, and so each step I started to, because I was willing to do more and show up more, every step um, gave me greater benefits. And then it made me want to keep doing the steps. So like all of the writing and clarity that I got around step one made me want to do step two, same thing. The step four that I did uh, in that relapse was uh, the big book, Joe and Charlie worksheets. 
you know? Um, so instead of doing the OA workbook where I just like I had, and that was revelatory for me, like doing the four step that way. So very, very structured. After that, I actually moved up to here to Portland, Oregon, and I got a sponsor uh, who I love very much, who's my sponsor today. And you know, she's not, she's somewhere between my first sponsor, which was very loosey goosey and my drill sergeant, AA sponsor. She, she's a nice middle ground. She's like, she makes me, or she doesn't make me cause she doesn't have to, you know what I mean? But she'll suggest some writing on that. She'll suggest, she'll say like, why don't you do some writing on that? Why don't you do whatever? So I am still working a step, but often it's exactly what you talked about. It's that I'm working a step around something more current that's happening in my life. So for example, um, you know, she'll say, oh, it sounds like you're in step one about that. You know what I mean about that issue or about whatever. And so she'll be like, why don't you do some step one writing on that? And then she'll, and then when I do, she's like, okay, Nicole, well, you know that it's now a two and a three on that. You know, are you willing to turn that um, over to God? Are you willing to whatever? And, and then we work from there. Then I'll do a step four on it. Then I, I will literally from step four, I'll share with her. But you're right. It's much more now specific to whatever is coming up into my life. That's what I mean when I say it's much more grad school. It's like we get much more into the area of my life instead of a general sweep of my life. Okay, so um, does that, Carol, answer your question? I couldn't hear you, is that a yes? Okay, all right, awesome, thank you. Okay. Uh, Nancy. My name is Nancy Beecham, compulsive overeater, 100 pounder. Um, sponsees, thank you for your share. But sponsor, I want to tell you for me, you knocked it out of the ballpark and I can listen to you for hours. Um, I have a question, but first I just wanted to say that after 44 years of abstaining and having a food plan, all my dreams are true. And I am quiet and happy, joyous and free a lot of the time. But for me, I had to change what I thought was good. I had to change what I thought I should have because there's nothing that's anything like what I thought my life should be like. It's the guy, life now that I found out God wanted for me. And in accepting that, yeah, everything is fine. But what I wanted to ask for my question was, could you kind of share with us since you first started and having this tremendous background of sobriety, you know, of people with sobriety feeding you the steps, have you changed how you approach the holidays and your relationship with food and, and like where you go and what you do and how you protect yourself? And was there a time when you brought somebody with you if you had to go somewhere or you actually just spent the day going to a meeting or, you know, and, and did things change or they gradually gotten a lot easier? Would you just go into a little bit of that? Thank you. Uh, yes, thank you, Nancy. Um, okay, so approaching the holidays and then Carolyn, I do see your hand. So uh, thank you for bringing that up because uh, I did have a plan of action. So um, my brain has like three responses. So just hold on a sec. So first I wanna address 
Um, going into the holidays, I did learn. Now I'm a sugar addict. Sugar's off the table. There's no, it's to me, sugar is like alcohol. There's no gray area. There's no, it's just zero. So in the beginning, in the, the very first time I tried to do Thanksgiving with no dessert, um, what I hit was a level of feeling very deprived. So there I go and I did really well um, during the meal. And then as we all know, and it, you know, I, there's 15, 20 people there, everyone pulls out the pies and the, and, and I made the mistake of not planning anything for myself. And so then what was happening is, is I'm surrounded with my family that I love. They're all ooing and eyeing about all of these pies and I've got nothing. And so I really, it was uncomfortable. I felt deprived. And, and so it was not a good experience. And you know what? That's the thing I remember from that whole day. So that whole day we spent together, what I remember is me not um, feeling like I got a treat. So I learned, I did some research and I figured out what was a really good sugar-free, no sugar, you know, dessert for me that I brought. And for me, of course, it was a lot of, um, I could have dairy. And so it was a lot of really wonderful fruit, like fancy fruit, you know what I mean? With some cream, some half and half cream. And then uh, if you actually put it in the freezer, it makes it kind of really cool. And so I brought that. And then the next year, when everyone brought out their dessert, I got to have my dessert and it was wonderful. So I do want to caution people about thinking that you can go to a feast, you know, a celebratory feast and just be in deprivation the whole time. So um, it doesn't have to be food related. Uh, I have another friend who brings bubbly water. I also like to bring uh, chai tea, you know what I mean? Uh, so again, like when other people are having their special foods, I get to have something special too that is completely within my abstinence. Um, so one of the other things that I did in the beginning, uh, my family is really separated now. And so uh, it's, it's not really, um, well, I'll get to that. But in the beginning, when I was going to these, you know, family events, Thanksgiving, whatever, uh, I, did, I did have one year where I brought my scale. Um, I let my, um, my sister, uh, my, BS, my best friend's sister, I, I, who's not in the program, but understood. I said, you know, cause she was gonna be there. So of course, everyone in the rooms, I let know ahead of time what my commitment was. And then with my sister, I was like, I'm really gonna need your help. Because I definitely was one, one of those families where basically, you know, you just started eating as soon as you hit the ground. I mean, it was just like the snacks were out, the whatever, and, you know, let alone the turkey and stuff like that. So for me, um, and it was also really hard because I also came from some of a, a traditional fa family where it's like the men um, were in the living room watching football. Um, it was open house. So it's like, but they were all on the couch watching football and the women were all on the kitchen table, you know, behind the couch playing cards with chips and whatever. <laughs> I mean, it was just, 
So, but the thing is, is that I had to ask my family for help. I really did. And I, you don't have to tell them that you're in a 12 step program. You can just say, I'm really trying to be good. And, and here's the thing. They're going to tell you like, oh, it's just a holiday, whatever. And, you know, just see if you can find an ally. And if you don't have an ally in, in your family, then I've definitely had I always did. So I was very lucky like that, but I've had sponsees who didn't. And I was like, say that you got to leave the room, go to the bathroom, get on your hands and knees, do a prayer, text someone. And then also just remember that the other name for Thanksgiving is Thursday. I mean, it's still just another day. And I promise you that if you work your tools and work the program, you know, that you'll start to focus on, on the joy of the day and and not the food and and i'm going to take a risk and say you know if thanksgiving is not a joyful thing for you do you really need to go um you know i mean we're adults now and you get to make these kinds of choices so i hope that i talked about working the steps so basically really quickly i see carolyn um when I say, I hope I've kind of captured what I mean by every day I'm working the steps, which means every day I do my third step prayer, which means that I have admitted step one and step two, like just by doing the prayer means that I admit that I am powerless over food and my life is not what I want it to be despite my best efforts. Um, and then, you know, I believe in a power greater than myself, which is the program and the process of recovery, which includes all of the tools of recovery, all the slogans and suggestions, you know, that have been vetted by my sponsor, because sometimes there's stuff out there that just doesn't work for me. Like I have a, a, a fellow in the rooms who can't do any restricting of any kind, any weighing and measuring any like red light foods at all, because she has such an anorexic background. So, you know, again, like work with your sponsor to find something that works for you, because the shape of our disease can be very different depending on that blend of compulsive eating, compulsive food behaviors, restricting, binging, purging, over-exercising, you know, stuff like that. Um, and then by doing the third step prayer. And then the other thing is because I've gone through the steps, now if I feel like I've made a mistake, I, I don't wait to work the steps on it. I'm like, oh, I think I made a mistake there. Um, you know, I'd like to make amends or apologize or just make a living amends. So if that didn't answer your uh, question, um, Peggy, could you please let Trish know? I'm going to take a minute to once again um, mention the seventh tradition. We have expenses from Zoom and our website and all excess contributions go to the OA World Service. So any contributions that you make, pay for the Zoom license, pay for the website, pay for the extra storage that's required so that we can host the recordings and then all money after that go straight to world service. So um, anyway, Carolyn. Um, hi, this is Carolyn. I'm a compulsive overeater. And I just wanted to say again, every time I shared, I said this, but Trish and everybody that set this up, it's just so fantastic. To me, I see God through, I struggle a lot with the steps, you know, the God thing. So I see God through people and 
you know, to me, that's God in the flesh. So it's been so fantastic when I hear you guys speakers. It's just like everyone, I'm like, okay, this is the best speaker I've heard on the rise. Oh, no, wait, wait, this one is the best speaker. No, really, this is the best speaker ever. So um, I just want to say it's absolutely fantastic because for me, I'm not very organized. And so to me, it's just like putting together little pieces and little, little, I don't know, things are falling into place as time goes on, mostly, uh, I think mostly from listening to people and absorbing what they say. But um, my question for Nicole was, um, I, okay, after your, after your 13 years, you had a certain concept of God, and then you had <clears throat> a crisis, and then you said your concept of the higher power changed. So I guess somehow I mixed, I, I was listening to everything you said, but I'm just, uh, if you could say again what that was, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So thank you. I'll try to keep this brief because I want Wendy to have a chance to ask her question. And then I, I do think we'll be out of time. So I came in uh, an agnostic and, uh, and then, you know, there's 12 steps saying, you know, you know, come up with a higher power. I had to do, you know, writing on it. And so I was like, okay, you know, let me try this God thing. And um, and then, uh, and so without realizing what I was doing, I was creating for myself a God. It wasn't an old man in a sky type thing, but it was a God that I thought if I have this relationship with God, and if I'm really good, and if I do all these things that I'm supposed to do, then God will give me all of these promises. And so I believed in basically this, what they call the Santa Claus God. Like if I've been good all year, I'll get the rewards. And so I was going to meetings and dealing with causes and conditions outside the rooms. I'm a trauma survivor. So, you know, I was not able to fully show up for recovery without therapy. I had to do them in tandem um, because of the PTSD and, and, and all of that stuff. So what I didn't, I didn't realize that I was believing in that God until I had a personal tragedy happen to me at 13 years. I was like, and I, so I was 36 and it started, it started manifesting at, at age 34. So, and I came in at 23. So when I was expecting to meet the person of my dreams, get the job that was amazing, have the career that was amazing. Like I was expecting at 13 years to be the old timer who was telling their story and saying, I came in and my life was unmanageable and I didn't have this and I didn't have that. And then I surrendered and I am a Capricorn. I worked this program like a mofo. I mean, I overworked this program. So I was just like, I expected to now be a circuit speaker who would be like, and now I actually own my own home in San Francisco. I like have a career, I have whatever. And that didn't happen for me. What actually happened was I ended up, I had personal tragedy, which involved a major health crisis and being on disability for four months and, and not being able to work. So not to mention, you know, the ending of a relationship where I was like, oh, this is the person I want to marry. So it was just this devastation. So that confronted my false belief around what was and not 
a higher power and what God can do and what God can't do. And for me, if anyone needs, you know, you can contact me privately, but I have to tell you a good way to think about how to get out of that concept of why do bad people, bad things happen to good people or whatever is really meditate on what it means to have free will and what that means. So from there, having like my house devastated, the only thing that was left for me that I had any faith in after that, while that was happening, was I still believed in going to meetings. I still believed in working the steps. I still believed in working with a sponsor. I still believed in carrying the message. And what I personally discovered was that that was enough of a higher power that created the promises in the program. That for me was like, oh, and then I really understood that like God's favorite instrument is people. And so I sort of got away from trying to define my concept of a higher power above and beyond the process of recovery. That again, what I realized that I could believe was true was that I believe in something beautiful, I believe in something mysterious, and I believe in something divine, period. That's it. For me, that's as far as it goes. And then all of those things manifest and show themselves in the process of recovery. So I'll just focus on that and let go of everything else. So I'm going to finish that. So Wendy, I've, 